space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Deltons and Vulcans, Apollo and Metrons, Spock and Lee Kelso, Klingons and Mr. Sue Elizabeth Sherwood, Mr. Scott and Chekhov, Orions and Gary Mitchell, Khan! They're all part of the Star Trek Who's who? Tellerites and Romulans, number one and Captain Pike, Uhura and Captain Kirk, Doc McCoy is kind of a jerk. They're all part of the Star Trek. Who's who? Hey, what about the Ewoks? Hello and welcome to an exciting new era for the Who's Who podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and for those of you who have been following the show for many years, you know this episode is going to be a bit different. You might even say we're in an undiscovered country. Joining me to talk about this two-issue series, Who's Who in Star Trek, are two fellow Fire and Water Network All-Stars, both Trekkies in good standing, Chris Franklin and Siskoid. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello. Yes, this is very, very cool. Very, very excited to be talking about who's who in Star Trek, because I love Star Trek. The guys love Star Trek. Before we uh, move forward, though, I do have to say a big thank you to Daniel Cynical Adams and Eshen Burge for their custom who's who in Star Trek theme. Really, really love it. Of course, based off their original who's who theme, I think it's terrific. Isn't that a lot of fun, guys? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Very, very talented guys. We'll have their, of course, their link to their site in the show notes. So thanks, guys, for that. So, yeah, who's who in Star Trek? It's a two-issue series. Um, I reached out to the editor, Bob Greenberger, to get a couple comments about sort of the history of this series in terms of, you know, why it was started. It launched in uh, the cover dated March of 1987, which means it went on sale in late December of 86. That was right at the tail end of the original Who's Who series, so there was a brief overlap. So I asked Bob, you know, what was the idea of, of getting this started? Was, was Star Trek that big of a hit? And he said that the commercial and critical success of Who's Who led DC management to consider spin-off options, with Star Trek clearly one of the strongest options. I had already done Who's Who, so they knew I could handle the many pieces plus the Paramount approvals. So Bob was just a natural fit for this series, and I think most of us agree that he did a really good job because I think, I think most of us are pretty big fans of who's who's in Star Trek. So, of course, we're going to start with the wraparound cover by Howard Chaikin, you know, one of the hottest artists in comics at the time, and he did the cover to Who's Who in Star Trek, both issues. He had done the job on the Star Trek Three Search for Spock movie adaptation. So uh, Bob Greenberger told me that's why he ended up getting the gig. Now, this cover is a little different in that it's, it doesn't have all the characters. It just has some. And, of course, we have the big three characters right in the front, Kirk, Khan, and one of the Klingons. So, guys, what do we think of this cover? Uh, I like it quite a bit. I think uh, Chaikin, he manages to capture the essence of Kirk and Khan without it being an obvious photo reference, which, you know, those will pop up <laughs> throughout this series. I love the front, but I have no idea who the hell these people are on the back. I, <laughs> I mean, this this alien head is that is that an uh, Andorian? I think it's supposed is, to be. I guess that's supposed to be an Andorian. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not blue. There's no white hair, but it's got the it's got antenna, but it's not quite Andorian antenna. And I don't know who the three people are. There's uh, a, a guy in an engineering outfit that might be. Scotty's nephew, Peter Preston, yeah, Peter Preston slash the kid from Witch Mountain. Uh, 
the uh, there's a, a blonde uh, female and then a, a, a black male. So I, I don't know who these characters are. Maybe they're just supposed to be generic Starfleet personnel, which is fine. But it looks great. But I just it's kind of odd that I, we don't know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> I also find it strange that the there's a lot of uh, Starfleet logos uh, from different eras, kind of thing, peppered all over the, the cover. There's mm-hmm. also the the Mirror Universe Star Empire on there, and mm-hmm. that's only in the next issue. It's like it's, <laughs> it's 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 like an orphan from the other issue, like Mirror Universe. We don't quite get there. Right. <laughs> True. I never really considered that. I always thought that the guy was sort of Sulu-ish, but. He's right. He's in the Sulu, engineering yeah. outfit, so he would not be Sulu. And plus, Sulu wasn't even this issue, even in this issue anyway. So yeah, this is a little baffling. Yeah, like the black a, guy may be Power Record Sulu. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> and that could have that could be an older Janice Rand in the bag, but you know she never actually looked like this. <laughs> I think Chaken being Chaken. Yeah. Yeah, Chaken being right. Chaken. He just does what he wants. I think basically. But it, it looks spiffy. The Enterprise looks great. And we see the yeah. Klingon bird of prey, and that looks good. So, you know, I, otherwise it's a nice it's a cover. And they said, I think the main image is great of the three of them. I love the gritted teeth that the Klingons got. That's just that's a great Klingon face. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's pretty Krooge-like. It, it, there's a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of Christopher Lloyd's Krooge in there, so I like that. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's really sharp. So, yeah, it's a nice cover. I like the – I mean, the logo is pretty basic. It's the Huzu logo mixed in with the Star Trek logo. They don't have the go-go checks or any of the other sort of stuff. It really – visually, it does have a lot of distinctions from the – and we'll see on the inside that there's no um, yellow dots or anything. So, visually, there's a lot of differences between this and the, the basic Huzu setup that we're familiar with. So, uh, okay, well, we're going to move right on to the inside. On the inside cover, there's a little intro from Bob Greenberger where he talks about that there is – 79 live-action episodes, 22 animated shows, four feature films, and 100 different comic books and some 45 or so novels. And it was Alan Asherman's job to sort of boil this down into one cohesive universe, which is that's pretty, a pretty astounding job. Uh, I, I mean, I guess, unlike Star Wars, Star Trek has never been rebooted, right? Like, it's this is all still canon, essentially? Uh, as long as you don't count the, the new movies as a reboot, if you just count it as a separate timeline, then no. Which yeah, I do. Still... I, that's a I, that's a that's the Kelvin universe. I think what they right, call it. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's all one big thing. There yeah. are things that are discontinuous if you use the, the entire what I call the extra canon. Uh, you know, it's it's not like the Star Wars. They had the like all those novels. The expanded universe was all until recently was canon. For Star Trek, it really wasn't. When you read a novel, you could. Pretty much, you were pretty sure that uh, something would contradict it later on. And so, uh, and the comics timelines don't match up. Uh, you know, prior to this, of course, prior to DC having the license, uh, of course, Gold Key had it in the '60s, sure. and then Marvel had it just before this, uh, after um, the motion picture, like using the motion picture uh, uniforms, and the, uh, like the, the the first DC series took place between. Wrath of Khan and I guess Star Trek V, and then their second series, which was after Star Trek V on the Enterprise A. So they had like very distinct uh, comic book series in there, and they from company to company they didn't keep the continuity. But of course, like the Gold Key stuff was completely absurd. The, <laughs> like the inside of the saucer section was the entire bridge, basically, and some of the some of the artwork. The you know the Gold Key stuff 
had artists working from photo reference, having never seen the show and doing it concurrently with the show. So, uh, you know, it's not one coherent universe when you look at the extra canon. But this, um, the who's who uses the continuity from the uh, the shows, the movies, and the, the the animated series. Some of the novels, like I picked up some of the. Uh, some of the things that happened happened in novels, like the early novels or the, the best-known novels are in here. And most of the stuff that you don't recognize from the shows is actually from the comic series, which uh, the first comic series had ended at this point. So this is happening right with the like uh, 20th, the 20th anniversary of Star Trek, right. uh, sort of around the time of uh, Star Trek IV. So... Um, so the who's who has elements from that first DC series, uh, comic book series, and sometimes some of the novels. I'll, you know, I'll mention it when it happens. All right, good to know. Cool. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever read any of those novels. I, I think I, I've read a couple of the Shatner novels, but that's it. I'm not completely unfamiliar with like the '70s ones and stuff like that. So yeah. I've read many of the early novels. Uh, and um, and I've read every Star Trek comic ever published, wow. except the UK right. ones. Catalog well, every one of them. We're for the blog, yes. Right, right, right. You know, Things happen. <laughs> things get out of control over at the SBG. That's, that's completely true. So, all right. Well, uh, we're gonna get. We're gonna jump right in here. Uh, the very first listing are for the Andorians. It's drawn by Mike Clark and Carl Kiesel, and of course, their first appearance was in Journey to Babel. Uh, I mean, you know, they're known for that. And I remembered I had the Mego doll, uh, the Andorian oh, Mego doll. Nice. Chris, I assume you did too, right? No, I did not. I only had you Mr. Did. Spock. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what Star Trek was at that at that time. I kept my dad kept trying to get me to watch it during my biggest Mego phase. So it was uh, he was the Submariner with Robin Shorts. Right, 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 so. right. Yeah. <laughs> did you ever have any of the Star Trek Migos? Uh, no, I I was a uh, I was a relatively poor kid. <laughs> I, we didn't have well, I know they existed. I, I've seen them in other people's collections, and uh, you know I I sort of looked at them greedily. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, there was actually there was a time when there were Mego dolls in the house, and I don't know what happened to them, and I don't know who where they came from, <laughs> uh, and where they went. But I, I remember having them in the apartment when I was like seven, hmm. and then poof, they were gone. No idea. Huh. Do you, Do you have siblings? <laughs> yeah, but I'm the oldest one. I, oh, you know, that, those hmm. toys should be mine. But <laughs> uh, I I don't know if they were. I don't know what they were doing there. I have you know I have no memory of them appearing or disappearing. Hmm. Just they were there, and I remember like you know you know putting the clothes on them. Switching the uniforms around, I, I have vivid, you know, memories of of that, and I think they were they weren't Star Trek Mango dolls. I did, you know, they're probably superhero ones, but um, you know, very vague memory that I'm just you know flashbacking on right now, <laughs> kind of thing. It seems like the worthy subject for an In Search of episode by Leonard Nimoy, but I'll leave for another day. So anyway, In Search of the Missing Migos. In Search of the Missing Migos. Yes. So, uh, what do we think of this listing, guys? Uh, it's 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 interesting. I, I, you know, it seems like there's quite a bit of a backstory added here, and, and I'll leave it to Siskoid to fill us in. Is that if this is Asherman just making this up as he goes along, or is this based on a novel? Because you know, we didn't get a lot of Andorian action on screen. We basically journeyed to Babel, and then uh, uh, Whom Gods Destroy, there was an Andorian 
at the uh, asylum. And I think that's off the top of my head the only time I remember him being on the show. So this flibagella thing that <laughs> they wear is new to me. I don't know. You know, it's uh, so, sounds even worse than a bagpipe. Flabgella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind of animal's stomach. Uh, yeah, well, no, all of this information is, I, I believe this is all from uh, from books. A lot of this, you'll, you'll notice that a lot of this stuff uh, in these entries is as is under, in quotation marks, is like from logs, as if they were, you know, as if the, the writer of the Who's Who is actually inventing them. But I suspect they're actually from um, the Alan Dean Foster's Star Trek logs, which were uh, adaptations of episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and used the log, you know, star date and then the log form uh, in in many of the uh, you know in many ways. So I think a lot of this information is actually coming from Foster's books or adaptations. Um, they may not be. I, I, I have no way to check on th- this particular subgroup of books, but um, but that that's what it reads like. And I think a lot of those books actually added information to what we saw on screen. Stuff like this, like talking about Andorians, might be in there. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's probably from some early novels. Uh, there were Andorians in the comic series, so maybe there's just information there that I've forgotten how it got in there. But it's very, very detailed compared to what we know of Andorians, you know, even post Enterprise. I love that uh, the action beat back, back, the one Andorian kicking the other guy. Like that's 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 like a classic sort of. You know, early Star Trek roustabout type. Uh, I can hear the da 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 music playing in the background. <laughs> I wonder what's going on. What's going on with Kirk? Where he's all like, you know, he's like drugged or something there with the the Andorian. Is that something from? Am, am I just blanking on something from Journey to Babel where that happened? I know there was a a spy disguised as an Andorian that stabs Kirk. But I, I don't get why he's looking like he's been doped or something. <laughs> Are we forgetting an animated episode, maybe? Might be. Yeah, might be. He's got the wraparound on, though. That one made me think it came from the series, but I could be. Yeah, I'm not I, as up on my animated episodes as I should be. Yeah, I haven't seen them in a very, very long time. So, yeah, then it could be something from there. So, uh, What do you guys think of the artwork? I like it. You know, yeah, me it, too. Yeah, it's kind of at odds with the text because they talk about um, Andorians wearing colors that denote their rank or their position in society, and they go on to say, "Well, the higher the rank, uh, the more like gray and black are for like super high-ranking people." And these guys are super colorful, yet look—you <laughs> know—the uniforms look really gaudy and rich, and like these people would be rich people. But if they were, then they'd probably just be dressed in black. Anyway, so it's kind of at odds with it. It's not styles that we saw on the show either, especially the, like the the front figure. Yeah, they could have uh, never afforded that costume. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, yeah, no, I you know I like it. I like Mike Clark's uh, work, and Carl Kiesel for me is like one of my favorite inkers um, in any for anything, really. So uh, always enjoy his work. Yeah, he's a ringer. Isn't that a, make anybody look better? Is Carl Kiesel is one of those guys? So. All right. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to move on to Apollo from Who Mourns for Adonis. This is drawn by George Perez. Now, 
When I bought the of course. Gazoo, yeah, I, when I <laughs> when I bought the Star Trek series off the newsstands, I was really impressed that they had some real heavy hitters in here. And I this was uh, another question I asked Bob Greenberger because I, I asked him how did he land some of these big people? I mean, Shaken does the covers. We got Perez here. Of course, we're going to get to Byrne. And he said some like this is what Bob said. He said some like John Byrne came to me with a list of characters that he wanted to draw. I let it be known we had the project in the works, and many came to me. And he says, as you can tell, I also relied on a lot of rookies to complete the package as well, given the schedule. So these are, I mean, you know, I'm sure George Perez had a lot of things else to work on than this, but he must have requested to do it. So, I, you know, I could see why Perez would want to draw this character, even if he didn't have any necessarily any connection to the episode. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's a great drawing. I mean, it looked, I mean, it clearly, you know, just looks like it's right out of Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah that's, his, that's the connection, really. Uh, and it's obviously a big name artist wanted to do this and they let him do it because otherwise Apollo should be in the appendix. Probably there are, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he never appeared again. He didn't appear in, uh, like the text here ends with the, the end of that episode, the end of who mourns for Adonais. So there's no, and there are no comic book stories where he shows up in the, at least in the DC run. Uh, so, you know, why him and not, I don't know, the Tholians, you know, later on. Uh, you know, why him, since he never appears again and has little chance of appearing again? It's because George Perez wanted to draw him, and you said, well, yeah, sure. And, I mean, since then, the, the you know, his giant green hand ha- has appeared in uh, Batman Beyond. Uh, Batman Beyond, what am I saying? Star Trek Beyond. So, um so eventually, Apollo became relevant again. Interesting. Yeah. I love his uh, current status. Deceased? Question mark. <laughs> uh, it's this is a great this is a great entry, and and but you're we're gonna see some uh, you know head scratching. Why did they get an entry, and why is this character in the appendix? Uh, <laughs> kind of yeah. entries as we go along. So, <laughs> like the Andorian one, this has got a lot of quotes in it. I say they're going to buy, they're going to rely a lot on that, and to me, I, I yeah. find that the reading is a little awkward with all those quotes. Yeah, but this is like the, like you know, probably Alan Dean Foster prose, uh, just poached, right. and yeah, I mean it's it's text from the it's either dialogue from the episode or logs, uh, but it's an interesting way to to tell the story because the who's who would have been compiled by Starfleet or, uh, you know, United planets, historians from logs from the ship. You know, it's, it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of interesting. Cause if you read some of, some of the log entries kind of, uh, paint the events of the episode in kind of a different light than, than what the, uh, than what the filmed episode gave us. And in fact, in this one, it almost sounds like, uh, Dr. McCoy's medical log kind of, condemns Kirk a little bit for, you know, not giving Apollo some love so they could learn about Earth's history firsthand from this guy, you know. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. It's a nice little wrinkle, you know. Hmm. And I, I should say, uh, Cisco, you, you corrected, you said it correctly, Adonais. I can never, I know that's how it's pronounced, but I always say Adonis in my head. I can never say that right. I don't know why. Adonis is, a, is another guy completely. Yeah, it's just, I just <laughs> my brain just will not let me say Adonis for some strange reason. So, all right, next up uh, we've got April, comma Robert, and this is the beginning of uh, in terms of how these entries are arranged is very different than Who's Who because the characters here in Star Trek are listed by their last names as you would normally list regular people. That is not that was not done in the main Who's Who book. Lois Lane was L O, not L A. Right. Um, 
I can't argue that this is the wrong way to do it because, you know, the, you know, it's Robert a April Robert. I mean, it, it's it's not his superhero name. That's just his name. But I can't <laughs> help but think it looks funny. It just looks weird to see it in this format. I don't know. Do you guys yeah. agree with me? Well, would you have liked to see Uhura under N? No. You know, there are people like that, like Sulu under H. So it's, yeah. you know, a lot of these people are called either, or should they be on, like C for Captain Kirk? Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, some some of the lesser lights, maybe it seems strange to say April, comma, Robert, but, you know, we do call them Kirk and Spock, well, Spock, uh, and McCoy, we call them, you know, we call them by their last names or rank last name. So I'm not too bothered. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Th this is where I would try to find them. Where, where's Kirk? I'd be looking under K. <laughs> yeah. It, it always honestly kind of bothered me in Who's Who that they, the regular people, the normal people like Lois Lane, didn't go by their, their last name. I, I guess it was the Ohatmu influence, which, as we fought, found this week, you know, Blaze Johnny, you know. Yeah, right. So, exactly. It's Blaze, comma, Johnny. Yeah. Blaze, comma, Johnny. <laughs> I should mention uh, this is drawn by Art T. Bear, and Robert April's first appearance is in the Counterclock Incident. I have virtually no memory of that. That's the last animated episode. Right, yeah. I just so, do where Robert April episode. shows up. Yeah. It's the story that's told here is exactly that, that the story of that episode, uh, where the Enterprise goes into another like a parallel, well, parallel antimatter universe kind of thing, where people start aging in reverse. I mean, the the animated episode had um, some pretty loopy physics, <laughs> usually. <laughs> to be kind uh, to it, yeah. I think it's funny that uh, R.T. Bear falls into the trap that you see a lot of the uh, the animated series, some of the presentation artwork, the early presentation artwork, instead of them having the little flared bottoms of their pants they look like they've got on captain america style buccaneer boots <laughs> and and oh, robert yeah. april has those on here uh it's it's really strange looking <laughs> <laughs> in the pirate yeah yeah <laughs> he's with his tunic he looks like uh, the live action mira in the upcoming justice league movie with the pointy shoulders he's kind of got like a batman thing it's sort of yeah. the look but doing. robert april really has a longer history in the sense that uh, he, that was the name of that, like in the series Bible, when Roddenberry was planning out the show, Robert April was the name of the captain. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it became Christopher Pike. And then, you know, let's, they rebooted it after one pilot and then became James T. Kirk, but they still brought Robert April, uh, forward in the, in the animated series, because for the longest time, what we thought of as, you know, what Robert April looked like was Roddenberry in, uh, in a captain's shirt. Right. <laughs> that was usually the picture that you saw for Robert April. Yep, in the Star Trek Encyclopedia. Yeah, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> great bird of the galaxy. Uh, all right. Well, next up is Arix, drawn by Ken Penders and Frell, I believe is the name there. Uh, he first appeared in Infinite Vulcan, and this is the kind of thing where. You take one look at the character and you go, well, obviously, if you didn't already know it, there's no way he first appeared in the live-action show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was uh, the uh, sort of a replacement for Chekhov in the animated series uh, because they didn't have all the voices, so they sort of replaced a couple of characters. Uh, and um, Eric's was the, you know, the navigator. 
for the uh, for, for many of the episodes. And then he appeared in the, the in the DC comic series as well. They brought him back uh, at that time to you know to, because he's easily drawn. Where I, I'm not sure how easy he's, he's, he is to draw, but, uh, <laughs> but easier to draw than to portray on screen for sure. Where does he put that he, third leg when he sits in the chair? I don't know where that it, goes. Ooh, good point. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not too sure. Filmation, please answer us. Uh, is there a hole in the chair? <laughs> Can he bring all three forward? And he's like sitting with a, you know, a leg in his crotch. I don't, I don't remember. I'm they not. Only sure. had to, they only had to figure it out one time though, because they would just use that same animation yep. over and over and over again. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever saw him sit down. I think it was, he was either sitting down or standing up, and you don't need to see the legs. Uh, there is a, a weird discrepancy here. Well, weird, whatever. Uh, they say he's an uh, Edoan, right? That's the his species, the first one of the first Edoans to attend Starfleet Academy. Uh, mm-hmm. That that speech that was never mentioned on the show itself. That is from Alan Dean Foster's Star Trek logs. Uh, this I uh, fact checked, but by the time uh, we saw this species again in the New Frontier uh, books by Peter David, uh, he was a Triexian. Ah, hmm. Tri. So, okay. Tri. Uh-huh. Yeah, Triexian. Um, so uh, and so you know so there are discrepancies. Like I said. None of the none of the Star Trek extra canon is actual canon. It's all gonna step on you know on the toes of because so many of these novels and comics were done simultaneously with the shows, with the films, so that when the next film came out, when the next episode came out, the next season came out, it would you know contradict everything. So everything was fair game, so long as it, you know the shows always trumped the comics and books. We're going to get a lot of shuffling of, of events from especially Star Trek three uh, <laughs> into Star Trek four from the comic because they went off in a totally different direction in the comic while, you know, they were busy, you know, yeah. prepping Star Trek four after the events of three. So, <laughs> yeah, they were like, you know, they were on the Excelsior for a while. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, the, that bird of prey wasn't their first, uh, their first choice. <laughs> yeah. I like the the quote in the middle. There's from Sulu where he talks about getting acquainted with Arix, and he sort of like became chummy with him. And he says, you know, eventually he he's able to teach me a thing or two about his about navigating. And I thought, poor Chekhov, you know, like I feel like <laughs> you have any loyalty to me at all, buddy? You know, like the minute I'm replaced with this guy, you're all of a sudden buddy buddy with him. Well, he well, they, wasn't there in the first season, so well, that's true. Right. Well, they, they say it was due to a duty roster change that uh, him and Sulu got to be buddies and got to work together. So that's how they explain where Chekhov is. <laughs> <laughs> Always missing the action, Chekhov. Always missing the action. Stuff. All right. Well, next up is David Bailey, drawn by John Byrne, who we all know is a gigantic Star Trek fan. Uh, I wasn't sure where you were going with that statement. <laughs> 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 no, we're keeping things nice here on the Who's Who and Star Trek. Uh, David Bailey, of course, first appeared in the Corbinite Maneuver. And in the background, we see, I love the, the Spock angrily taking over the controls. I think that's just yeah. like a great little shot there. And then we have the shot of Balok. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, and Balok with his, with the um, Clint Howard. Clint, with his Trania, with his Trania juice. Yeah. This is one of my favorite episodes. Baylock, to me, is the single image of Star Trek I think of because he, he appeared on the end credits so much. That shot of mm-hmm. Baylock. Oh, That's yeah, just yeah. what I think of when I think of Star Trek. So uh, I, I, it's drawn really nice, uh, really nicely. 
I like the Enterprise going into like the sort of uh, the little universe there with a the little sort of circular, you know, oh, the, the circular sort of plates there. But the 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 pose is kind of boring. That's the only part I I'm a little little uh, not as excited on. He's just sort of just standing. A lot of these artists have, are, have trouble with the pose of whatever character they're drawing. Not often very dynamic, you know. Yeah, it's it's not as easy. You can't really take a Star Trek character and put him in like a a superhero pose, and and not make him look just like totally ridiculous. You know, I mean, yeah, especially the, console jockeys. It's <laughs> not like he wasn't on an away team where he could be holding a phaser. Or, That's true. Uh, yeah. Why does this guy have an entry though? <laughs> well, Why I think the, Baylock. I know? think yeah. Why not Baylock? But yeah, I well, think Baylock does not. Yeah, that's weird. It's basically we, we're going to tell the story of the Corbomite maneuver. We need we're going to do it through a character. This character was actually on the bridge. Was actually part of the episode all the way through. It's actually his story, is his arc, and Balog is sort of the you know the guest alien that we sort of only meet at the very end. So it's a way to tell the story of all these characters, but using the Starfleet character that we did meet. You know, they do that a lot with, like, they could have done, like Apollo, they could have done uh, Lieutenant, Pal- uh, how do you pronounce it? Pal- Palamis. Palamis. Yeah. They could have done it through her, but he's, you know, he's a big villain and he, you see him all the way through. Maybe that's not the case for Balog, even though he's more iconic, let's say, because, you know, I can't remember what David Bailey actually looks like necessarily. <laughs> he kind of looks like the pro- a young version of the professor from Gilligan's Island with blonde hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, you know... I, I, I see him now. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's true. I don't know why it took me a couple of pages to realize. One of the things I do like, I like the little uh, Star Trek insignia at the end of every listing. That's just yeah, a, a nice Q. little graphic detail. Set a little square, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice. Uh, yeah, I, I wish Baylock had gotten a, a listing. Just because, I mean, yeah, Clint Howard doesn't come in until the end, but he's so memorable <laughs> with the weird dubbing and the hello, Cap. It's just... I don't know. It's just so perfect. I really wish he had gotten a listing. So, um, all right. So next up is Bear Claw, uh, drawn by Jan Dursima, and this is he first appeared in Star Trek number one. This is our first character that is a a comic book uh, creation. So I am really completely unfamiliar with this guy. I did not read the Star Trek comic regularly. I read it sort of intermittently. So I read this listing, but other than that, I really have no inkling as to who this guy really was although it is drawn nicely mm-hmm. he was he was the resident jerk <laughs> I can he see was that. the guy you you i don't think you love to hate him you just hated to hate him he was like the worst <laughs> character uh the you know when the the new dc star trek series started they uh, mike barr was writing it and um you know how much i love mike barr and how he creates <laughs> a cast of lovable characters <laughs> Outsiders, <laughs> but uh, but no, actually he had the right idea with this because we can't do too much with uh, Kirk and I'm not going to say Spock because he was dead. Uh, you know, with the main cast, y- you can create like the below decks, the lower decks characters that that can evolve, that can have love affairs, that can die. Uh, all, all sorts of things can happen to these junior members. And uh, in Star Trek number one, they introduced like four of them. Bearclaw was one, and he was like this absolute racist, extremely unlikable. He hated all the other. He hated alien species, and I know there was like um, well, I was rereading my. Old, for that 
Yeah, really. And uh, and came from a, a strange place. I mean, he's a Native American character who uh, – so so you've got the the person of color, if you will, being racist uh, you know, in, in that future that's sort of idealized anyway. I guess it was like the sort of – I always thought it was kind of manufactured drama even on – on the regular shows when people were, you know, down on Vulcans or whatever it was, when people were being racist towards Spock on the bridge. I always find that off-putting and I, you know, why is this happening in this enlightened future? Mm-hmm. And so it was the same here. And, um, you know, he, um, uh, all these characters stayed until the before last issue. And then the last, like the, the first series lasted 55, 56 issues. And the last one was actually, uh, toss a TOS era story. So all these characters lasted until number 55. Uh, so we had Bear Claw in the way the whole time. <laughs> uh, and he never learned his lesson. Wow. Really, that character never learned his lesson. After issue 55, when they, you know, the stories were over, or the series was over, we never saw those characters again. And it sort of left them, you know, their storylines were sort of left dangling, really. Uh, because Bear Claw was always the jerk and was always down on alien, uh, uh, you know, other alien species. Um, and, you know, even though he got told, I remember this well, uh, somebody told him, you know, we're all aliens out here. You know, there is no such thing as alien. We're right, the aliens. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so they made a lot of, you know, the, the, the writers made points uh, around this issue and used Beric Law to sort of bring it, bring it up. But he, as a character, never really grew, in my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, I, you, were, you have to work really hard to be a racist in the Star Trek universe. I mean, you have to really want to be that. It does seem kind of absurd. Yeah. I'm surprised Roddenberry didn't didn't call foul. If they were running comics by his desk, he probably would have said, oh, no, that doesn't happen. And it's especially post-original series Roddenberry, who got even more into the humanism angle. And yeah. uh, you got the homogenized, everybody shiny happy people next generation you know right after this so you know (laughs) and you see him arguing with an endorian in the back and uh, but he was also like very action oriented you know you see him uh was it trying beating a monstrous bear creature is that a selic from vulcan uh (laughs) could be no the the claws aren't long enough anyway oh yeah you're right yeah but he is in an action pose with a uh, with a phaser in hand, you know. Yeah. yeah. Like he looks cool. The character, as you know, as executed, wasn't great. Fair enough. Well, uh, next up, we've got Philip Boyce, who, of course, first appeared in the Cage. And my connection. This is drawn by Jonathan Peterson, who I really kind of know as a writer and an editor. So I think they kind of tossed this was a sort of a gimme. And then they got uh, the inker is Greg Theakston. My sort of connection to this character, obviously I've seen him in the cage, is that he's played by actor John Hoyt. And John Hoyt had a lot of uh, great genre credits over the years. He appeared in my all-time favorite Twilight Zone episode, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And many years ago, I did a drawing of him from that Twilight Zone episode, which got the notice of his granddaughter. And uh, I have since become friends with her. And so <laughs> that's my connection to, to John Whoa. Hoyt. And it's, you know, nice. it's sort of amazing to think that, you know, her grandfather probably came pretty close to being, you know, uh, this, you know, could have been the doctor of Star Trek. Didn't quite work out that way. He had a long career and great, but that's, that's always what I think of when I see this character is, is of course, that's the sort of random connection I have to, <laughs> to John Hoyt. 
So uh, what do we think of this listing, guys? Well, I always think of him as the grandpa from Give Me a Break. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I met him there first. So when I saw the – well, I guess I saw him on the menagerie, uh, you know, but uh, instead of the cage, before I saw the cage. But I, I remember thinking, hey, that's that's the grandpa from Give Me a Break. <laughs> also on an episode of The Monkees where he uh, he creates uh, Richard Keel as a Frankenstein-type monster. So <laughs> – Useless information there, but um, no, I, I, no information is useless here on the show, Chris. Don't, don't, don't say. <laughs> I, I like the, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting that uh, it looks like he's talking to Kirk instead of Pike. That uh, I don't know if that's Peterson or or uh, or or Greg Thigston. Yeah, Greg Thigston there, but uh, that it, it looks more like Shatner than than Jeffrey Hunter. But you know, other than that, I mean, it's. I like a lot of the artwork in here, you know, and a Robert Greenberger cop to it that he had, he had some, you know, young guys, you know, uh, some greenies, you know, doing some artwork. I mean, this is, it's, it's fine. It's not, but you can, you can tell it's by, you know, kind of an untried artist compared to some of the other ones, but you know, it's not bad. I do, I do like that. Uh, well, I don't know if I like it, but I think it's interesting that they come out and say that he was known as the dirty old man of Starfleet. <laughs> Who like to, who like to examine new female crew members? Oh Lord! Uh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, wow, how times have changed. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, that's an odd detail. But there's a lot of secret origin stuff in here. It's you know, for a character that did not appear in a lot of episodes, a uh, single one. Uh, there's a lot of information about how he got into Starfleet at all, and uh, so he's one of those characters like the Andorians earlier that. You know, you can. There, there's a lot of. Uh, they went mining in source material that wasn't the show. It mentions at the end. It says Dr. Boyce is retired. He now teaches comparative anatomy and space medicine at Starfleet Medical Anat- Academy. I think once you've gone enough far into the future where traveling into outer space is a regular occurrence, I think you stop putting space in front of things. Like, <laughs> McCoy was called, also just called medicine. McCoy was at that also point. A, an expert in space medicine. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> yes. It comes up in his entry too, yeah. You know, they don't call Chinese food Chinese food in China. They just call it food. You know, <laughs> so it's like it's just. I think you just practice medicine at this point. You don't practice space medicine, but you know, who who am I to judge? I, I don't know. <laughs> medicine in space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe there's a particular different kind of medicine that you have to practice in outer space. I don't know, but anyway, uh, that's that. That is Philip Boys. Uh, next up is uh, Bryce, Common Nancy, another character from Star Trek number one. This is drawn by Arch T. Bear and Mike DiCarlo. Now, I'm assuming, Siskoi, is this one of those four new characters you talked about? It is. Oh. It is. And I'm a much nicer character, uh, one that um, we're, we're going to meet him later, but uh, she goes on to marry the Klingon Konam, who is the actual pre warf first Klingon in Starfleet. <laughs> another contradiction uh who was also introduced in that issue but um yeah she's like a super competent uh young ensign and uh that catches kirk's eye of course so to speak so to speak <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah she, like she was a pretty productive character compared to Eric Law. chris you have anything on nancy bryce well i I do remember I, I bought the uh, Star Trek comic intermittently too, uh, newsstand distribution and all. Uh, but it does show her with a dagger, and I know that she was possessed by Red Jack or Regic, uh, Jack the Ripper, 
uh, from the Wolf in the Fold uh, episode, and it's kind of weird that that's not mentioned here. I know looking ahead in issue two, Red Jack gets an injury, but it's kind of weird that they show it in the art, but it's not mentioned here because that's a pretty big deal when you get possessed by the demonic spirit of Jack the Ripper, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I smell cover up in the logs. <laughs> yes. Uh, I like the artwork. I like all the background stuff. I think it's well designed. Uh, there's some a little bit of dead space here and there, but for a character that doesn't have a whole lot going on visually, I think there's it's, it's laid out well. I think T Bear does a nice job. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. cute, and uh, and I like Mike DiCarlo on anything that's supposed to look glossy. I, I got mm-hmm. trained on uh, on Booster Gold, I suppose, uh, where he was inking Dan Jurgens. But, you know, like, he's like he's got a very, very thin line on some things that make, you know, I don't know. I, I call it, like, lip gloss inking. <laughs> but I do like it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next up is Christine Chappell. Uh, <laughs> first, <laughs> wow, okay. First appeared in The Naked Time. This is drawn by Ken Penders and Michael Bear. Yeah, this is a rough entry. This is a rough, rough entry. Uh, the drawing of, of Christine Chappell is... Really pretty bad. And the, the choice of the uh, sort of crossword puzzle background makes it oh. almost impossible to look at. I mean, this is a real eyesore of a, of a listing. If you, oh, yeah. look at, if you look at it and then look at a blank wall, do you, <laughs> <laughs> does it create some kind of weird illusion? We should try it. <laughs> oh, no, because you've got her treating someone, Kirk possibly, uh, and that looks like a motion picture era clothing and is he supposed to be is he reclining (laughs) is he on a bed and she's standing up because they're on the same plane it doesn't (laughs) i don't know what's going on there uh, in the background (laughs) oh it's 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 supposed to be check off because doesn't check off get burned in the motion picture with something yeah maybe yeah yeah. i think so yeah I, i try not to watch that one very often (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Gene Hendricks' ears just perked up. <laughs> we we had the discussion on uh, "Give Me That Star Trek" already, so he knows he knows my position. That's right. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah this, is, this is a rough. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. It's the yeah, wax is, dummy of Christine Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wax dummy of somebody else. It's not. It's not yeah. Barrett Roddenberry. Mitchell Barrett. Yeah, it's it's definitely not. It's. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of reference for her. And, I mean, again, clearly Roddenberry was not looking at these comics or he would have said, oh, hell no, to this one. <laughs> he, he was busy pitching his idea that the Spock kills kept, uh, kills uh, JFK. He was yes, exactly. pitching that idea for the 19th time. The 19th time. So yeah. I, I do like that they, they, they do mention the whole thing with Corby and the episode, what, what are little girls made of. But – they they just mentioned that she had a friendship with Spock. Okay, it was a lot more on her end than a friendship. Let's <laughs> let's let's be honest here, you know. So I mean, it's, I think that was kind of that's like one of the most important aspects of her character. Unfortunately, they didn't develop her very well. Other than that, and I, I think that was kind of a pretty big oversight uh, to to not specify that it was. You know, a, a a a relationship where one sided romantic relationship. Yeah. Starlog cover up. 
Yeah, I, I would, let's move on. This is just this is hurting my eyes as I'm looking at it, especially when we have something much nicer to get to. Next up, yes. our first big, you know, one of the core guys, one of the big, the Magnificent Seven, Chekhov, drawn by Dan Spiegel, who I love. I'm a big, big fan of Dan Spiegel's stuff. Uh, everybody's, you know, I mean, he's one of the great characters of Star Trek. First, of course, appeared in Cat's Paw. Um, doesn't look a whole ton uh, like Walter Koenig, but it doesn't bother me just because I. Dan, you know, I, Chris, I always feel guilty when I run down Kurt Swan because I know you're such a big fan. But yeah. it's like I'm a fan of Dan Spiegel, I think, the way you are of Kurt Swan, and that there are people who don't like Dan Spiegel's work because they say it's dull. Mm-hmm. And I can see that, but I like it anyway. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I can recognize that criticism, but I myself don't share it. And the reverse is true of Kurt Swan. So I really like this artwork. What do you guys think? I liked it. I, he drew a checkoff specific issue of Star Trek number nineteen that I that I actually have that was written by Walter Caney. Um, oh, really? So, yeah. so that's really cool. Yeah, it's a good it's a good issue. It's set in the motion picture time. He's got the pajamas on, uh, <laughs> which is uh, you know he shows him here. Hold, I think that's checkoff getting his arm injured. That's what we get back on uh, Christine Chapel's entry, but. Um, no, we're not going back to that. Stop it. No, I know. I, I don't want to go back. My, my eyes are still bleeding. Uh, but uh, I keep yeah, seeing I, sailboats for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, when I was a kid, Dan Spiegel's art in the back of Brave and the Bold on Nemesis, I would just be like, Ugh, every time I got to the back of a Brave and the Bold. But as I got older, it was, it was like one of those, it was like Kirby, like later Kirby. You know, eventually something clicks in your head where you begin to appreciate it. And uh, that's the same way here. And I, I think this is, uh, you know, one of the nicer entries uh, in the book. And I think it's nice. We get the scene from Star Trek IV where he's captured on the Enterprise, you know, so that's nice. Everybody remembers that. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, nice, it's a nice little entry. Yeah, I like the background stuff, uh, you know, getting caught on the nuclear vessel and all that. The Star Trek IV is really his, his best sure. uh, movie, certainly mm-hmm. for Chekhov. Because uh, I'm not a big fan of Chekhov as, as a rule. I think he gets all the worst lines and the worst jokes uh, in many of the films. But in that one, uh, he's pretty cool. It's just the the main picture. The main picture is you know Chekhov kind of didn't sleep the night before and <laughs> kind of standing at attention, but not. <laughs> sort of, oh man, oh this is a rough day kind of kind of look. But um, but otherwise, I think there's the, the you know the background is a lot more dynamic and interesting. This is also an entry that that talks about you know where he actually met Khan because that's the discrepancy. Ah uh, right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he wasn't in Space Seed, but then Khan. It recognizes him. Uh, so it says here that he was working in engineering back then. Right. He was a promising engineering officer. It's, yeah. it, it seems weird to me. I know they probably didn't have a whole lot of space, but like considering how much Chekhov gets to do in Star Trek Two, it's all jammed in the last paragraph. I mean, it's all of his history. And then in the very end, like, oh, by the way, and Khan took him over and put the bug in his ear and da 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 da. And they don't even mention any of the events of Star Trek Three. Yeah, even that hideous outfit he wore in Star Trek Three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that was weird. Yeah, it seems a little strange to me. (laughs) Yeah, it is weird that there's a lot of those like you know the art goes further. The the art shows a Star Trek four, so right, right. You would think that he was that he was injured on a naval vessel and was captured and 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 almost died and was rescued by Kirk. And I mean that was a big like you said that's his biggest moment in the movie series and. It's it is strange. I, I feel like that happens a lot in in here. I mean, there's a lot of text 
in almost every entry. This isn't like regular who's who, where a lot of times there's a ton of artwork and and not a lot of text. There's there's these are pretty dense. And with, the font the font is actually thinner, so you can put a lot more words than in regular who's who. Yeah, it's a little bit of an eye strain, uh, honestly, to to pour over a lot of these at once and. I think they kind of run out of uh, run out of room in some cases, and it, you know, they kind of ran up to a certain point and just kind of, and, and then the, this happened, and that's it. You know? <laughs> they were- am I wrong? Am I wrong in thinking that um, Chekhov is the only one of the Magnificent Seven that doesn't that gets only one page? I think all the others get more than one page. Hmm. I have to go back once, and look. Yeah, you know, you're right. Season uh, change, you know, just missed one season. Uhura gets. Yep, Sulu gets two, and Uhura gets two, and I know. It's, yeah. Everybody uh, else just gets two or three. Yeah. 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 Huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're right. I would imagine this drawing of Chekhov represents Walter Koenig's general view of Star Trek. <laughs> this kind of <laughs> general unhappiness with his connection to it, or something like that. But you know, this uh, looks like Koenig at several conventions I've seen him at yeah, sitting at this table. <laughs> not that that as depressing as that is, just does not look happy. Yeah. Oh, that makes me sad. So. It does me too. Yeah, but, it's an, but again, it's it's a nice drawing, and I like it. You know, it's funny when I every time I look at that drawing of him with his his wrist, I keep thinking he sprained his knee. He's running, you know. He's <laughs> ah, oh, his hand or something. <laughs> Got up from the console and hit his knee. Yeah, he banged his knee on the console. Yeah, exactly. Damn it! He's not used to being at the science station instead of Spock, so he keeps bumping his knee. So, uh, but yeah, so it's our first of, of the big characters. So. Um, now we're moving on to Kogli, comma, Samuel T. from Court Martial, drawn again by Ken Penders and Del Barris. Uh, we see him in the serpent there, buried in his work and uh, addressing the, uh, the tribunal there. What do we think of this one? Did he deserve a whole page? <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of Court Martial characters. Mm-hmm. And it is not the episode that I most fondly remember, especially as a kid. It was like one of these talky ones. Yeah. And the solution's yeah. kind of dumb. Yeah. So, it, yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I was the same way. That was just like one of those. This is one of those episodes where that I was just kind of like it was on, and I I never fully engaged in the story. I mean, I understand, you know. Now I can appreciate it more, but yeah, and yeah, because you get. You get him, and you get, we'll get to some of the other characters, and it's just like, okay, we didn't get Baylock for another <laughs> another shot at the Corbomite maneuver. So why in the world did we get more than yeah. one character from Court Martial? <laughs> but Cogley is uh, just had appeared in the comic book series. Ah, mm. like, okay. The last arc was the trial of Captain Kirk, like another kind of thing like that. So. Um, um, it, it was about Finnegan having been killed. It was like the the murder of Finnegan. Oh. Who does not get an entry? Yeah, where's he at? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And there's the Mon Jimmy boy. Yeah, there isn't much from uh, <laughs> from that uh, from that planet, is there? So, uh, so Cogley would just just did had appeared. So it makes sense. The but I mean they don't tell the whole story in the blurb. They're the, like like the last paragraph is really about that. But there isn't much information. The, uh, the in the in the episode Court Martial, Samuel Coakley was played by the great character actor Elijah Cook, 
Uh, and they kind of go for that look here that you can sort of vaguely, if you know what Elijah Cook looks like, you can sort of maybe make the comparison. But they don't, they're obviously don't worry about it, getting it too closely. But uh, I just like that just because I'm a fan of Elijah Cook. Like, I just like him as a character actor. So I appreciate, I, you know, that, that episode has a little more interest for me just because I like to see him in different projects. It's yeah. the same artist as uh, the Christine Chapel. you know, much way better. I don't know it what happened. Ken with... Penders, yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Huh. Mm, yeah. He he gets transformed by the inkers. He does a lot of entries here, and his artwork does not look like it's from the same artist from from entry to entry. I think where he was, uh, I wonder if he wasn't a DC staffer because I looked him up on Mike's Amazing World of Comics, and it looked like he his first uh, his first work was actually that that Mike lists is actually like from 1990 in like a Captain a- Adam comic book. So I don't know if he was on staff at DC and they threw him a bone with these or, or something because it's it's really strange that I mean this is 1987 so he didn't get another I'm doing a regular comic gig for three years so interesting but he does a lot of Star Trek entries all right <laughs> we all have to gird our loins here guys all right so uh, next up is Richard Daystrom from the Ultimate Computer this is drawn by Ron Friends and Mike DiCarlo this is I think for a listing that doesn't necessarily have a lot of visual hooks. I think this is really sharp. I think this is a very, very good drawing. I like the pose. It really tells you a lot about the character, the way he's got his hands folded, his frown, the way he's sort of... Lit. And then in the background, you've got the serpent of him uh, gra- grabbing arm, getting sort of up in uh, Kirk's business, and you see Spock there. Like, there's a lot of great body language. And then we see the Enterprise... In a, in a space battle, we see the computer in the background. I, I think for 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 her, I think Friends does a really really nice job on this listing. Yeah, I, I really this is one of my favorites in the whole series. I think he mm. really nailed William Marshall's look. I mean, without it being overly photo reference, you know, and and uh, and and I'm always going to like William Marshall because I love Blackula. Blackula, so, right? <laughs> I mean, you you know, you you could put some hairy sideburns and weird facial hair on him in a cape and. Blackula right here, you know. So I mean, he did it, you know. He got it, and and the 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 his his Kirk's great. I mean, you you get that moment of tension where you know they're trying to see who can outshoe each other in the scenery, you know, who can right. who can eat the most scenery there. Uh, <laughs> it's always Shatner, by the way. It's always you're you're going to lose that fight if you get into that fight with Lincoln. I don't know. William Marshall was pretty. I mean, he 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 was probably the most challenging, one of the most challenging guest stars on there, who almost outdid Shatner. I mean, when he when he reacts to the Vulcan neck pinch in that episode, that's like me and Cindy make fun of that all the time because we love it, but it's he like. <laughs> He like I wonder it's, it's a wonder he didn't snap a Nimoy's wrist because he just jerked his head over so quick. <laughs> I love it. It's it's him and Montalban, and that's the whole game. Yep, you're right. <laughs> those those exactly. two actors. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, Ron Friends does a good job across the board in in this issue. Whenever he gets an entry, I think it's like it's one of the one of the stronger ones. Uh, and Ron Friends doesn't get the I don't think he gets the the credit. He's due. I mean, it's like one of those Bronze Age workhorses. I agree. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, no, totally. I agree with you guys 100%. Yeah. It's, 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 it's you know, you're, you're making a lot of what you're given. Because, like I said, visually, this could have been really boring. But I think this is, is really quite sharp, and it tells you everything. I think even if you've never seen the episode, it tells you what you need to know about that character from the pose. You mm-hmm. can just look at it and go, oh, okay, I kind of get what the relationship is here. So. Uh, next I, up, 
Oh, oh I'm sorry. I, I thought it, one more one more point. I still scratch my head. Why in the world there would be a Daystrom Institute in Next Generation's time after this? What this guy did? <laughs> That's always bothered me. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, but, we have you know we have Trump University, so. <laughs> <laughs> No accounting for taste. So, uh, okay. Next up, we have Matthew Decker. Uh, This is drawn by Dennis Cowan, first of many entries he's going to do for the series, and Mike DiCarlo, who got a lot of work. Mike DiCarlo is very, very busy here. Uh, Of course, he first appeared in the Doomsday Machine. Uh, You can tell it's a Dennis Cowan drawing by by the the inking, or then the inking, but the drawing on the knees. He loves to draw that sort of the slight bagginess of people's pants right at the knee. I think we can always tell that it's a Dennis Cowan drawing when it's done mm-hmm. like that. So, but it's a, uh, it's, it's nice. I like the, uh, the sort of Martian Manor Henry Brow that he's got. You can't really see his eyes there. Uh, it's, it's a nice piece. And of course, unfortunately his current status is deceased. Yeah. But the, uh, yeah, I like the, I like the art. Uh, and I mean the, the, you know, putting a shade on his eyes is like, He's a troubled person, uh, even though the logs kind of forgive him. But the Doomsday Machine itself, the famous space cigar, is <laughs> off-model. It's terribly off-model. It's like this this time it's a space bottle. Or <laughs> Half a wine really, bottle. Yeah, it really doesn't look at all like the the thing in the, you know, the big doobie in, in the show. <laughs> No, it, it, and, and he doesn't look anything like William Wyndham either. But no. it's it's weird how likeness comes and goes. It's like were there were there likeness issues or or what? You know, it makes makes you wonder if they if they had to get clearance on because uh, some some artists like nail it, and some don't even try, and some are like, did you even watch Star Trek? Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you know, but this is a nice piece, but it just it just doesn't scream. And I think he's such a and I always like William Wyndham and anything anyway, but yeah. he's he's great, and you know, especially that Twilight Zone episode with the the you know uh, five characters in search of an exit. Uh, but uh, you know, he uh, he had such a expressive, memorable face. That look on his face. I'd like to have seen a close up of just that that terror, terrified look on his face, or that angry, you know, m- you know Ahab look on his face. Which is this this you know, it's just kind of a shame that. I wish if Ron Friends is, had done this one, he'd knocked it out of the park. You know, I, th- I think so. William Windham, no is, William Windham is connected to one of one of my sort of regrets in life because many years ago, when I was at the San Diego Comic Con, I had to get from one end of the con to the other. And if any of you have ever been to the San Diego Comic Con, you know that that's hard to do. And I was in a hurry, and I went by a table, and there was William Windham. He was at the con. And he had a table, and there was nobody there. Mm. And and I stopped, and I saw him, and I knew who he was because he had been in Star Trek. He'd been in Twilight Zone, as you just mentioned, Chris. He's in She's Having a Baby, uh, the John Hughes movie, which uh, mm. I, I like him. And, of course, he's the prosecuting attorney in To Kill a Mockingbird. And yes. He had, he had an amazing career, and I wanted to stop and say something to him, and I just didn't have the time. I just I was so and I was like oh I'll go I'll go back to it and I never did and now of course he's no longer with us and it's like I think he probably would have appreciated somebody my age at the time knowing who he was and knowing some of his non-genre credits and mm-hmm. I always regret that I regret that I didn't even take you know the two minutes 
to just stop and say hello to him because I think he probably would have appreciated that. Because he said he had a great, great career. He was one of those guys that was in a million. And, of course, um, he's in Plane, Trains, and Automobiles. He's the boss that never actually says anything in Plane, Trains, and Automobiles. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, and you're right, Chris. He looked, this looks nothing like him at all. <laughs> no, unfortunately. I, I will note one thing. He His known relatives list Will Decker, of course, and his wife, Jane, but in the next entry, we don't get a listing for Jane. <laughs> no, we don't get no, we don't get we don't get her. So, well, then let's uh, let's move right on to uh, William Decker, Willard. I'm sorry, Will, Willard. Willard Decker, of course, first appeared in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, played by the now persona non grata Stephen Collins. Mm. Uh, he's uh, mm-hmm. he's current. Yeah. His current status is listed as missing, which could work for the actor or the character. This is drawn by. <laughs> Drawn by, drawn by Ron Friends and Dick Giordano. Uh, it's a great listing. I mean, it's Dick Giordano inking. He, you know, I like at the bottom. You look, he's there smiling. We see him turning into the half machine with Ilya there from the motion picture. The pose is nice. He's got a. It, it looks a lot like Stephen Collins. It's funny you were just mentioning how the likenesses seem very uh, hit or hit or miss. But this one, they're clearly modeling it to look like Stephen Collins because it really does. Yeah. 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 And in and, and reading this entry, hammers home the point that this is William Riker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is no, like, start dust off the Star Trek Phase 2 book and let's go for the next generation. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's really the prototype for Will Riker. Definitely. Yes. I always wondered, uh, when they were shooting uh, Seventh Heaven, Stephen Collins and, um, uh, oh, shoot, what's her name? We played Jillian. Yeah, uh, what the hell's her name? I'm completely blanking on her name. The actress's name. Yeah, I got uh, Jillian Taylor stuck in my Jillian head. Jillian Taylor stuck in my head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, of course they, you know, they did like that show for seven seasons together, and they were both in Star Trek movies. And I'm like, mm-hmm. they must have talked about Shatner. <laughs> they had to have, right? I mean, you know, how could they not? Yeah, they, they, yeah. I'm sure they, I'm sure they did at some point. They almost had to. Uh. Cisco, what do you think of this listing? No, I like it. Again, Ron Friends, although it's just like a bagginess around the crotch that I find disturbing. Uh, <laughs> but then the, the motion picture uniforms in general I find kind of disturbing. Yes. So uh, so in that way it's well captured. Uh, yeah, no, it's, again, the, you know, the postures. It's, Ron Friends is getting is getting body language across, which is something that I think is difficult to do on most of these characters because – they can't use superhero poses like uh, the who's who does. So normal people standing around for, you know, just posing uh, very often falls flat. But with Ron Friends, it's always got personality. That's yeah. absolutely true. Yep, yep, yep. Catherine uh, Hicks. Catherine, yes. For those, I was about to say, for those of you screaming in your tricorders, right. it's Catherine Hicks. <laughs> I don't believe I don't know that. I don't know if top of my, I couldn't think of that because, you know, it's one of my favorite movies. But anyway. So uh, next up, we have Elizabeth Daner from Where No Man Has Gone Before, of course, played by Sally Kellerman. And we see her. It's drawn by Dennis Cowan and Rick Magyar. And in the uh, surprint, which is actually in the foreground, not so much the surprint, we see her putting the whammy on Kirk with her laser beam eyes. Uh, she's actually uh, – the, the close-up is really the bigger deal here. I, I tend to be look, talking about the artwork more than the listings just because I, I really find most of these listings – kind of boring to read i have to say uh so mm-hmm. I, I tend to focus on the artwork i mean i do that on the main show but 
but yeah, the, the pose for the the main figure is kind of I, I not an afterthought, but it's pretty minor. It's really the close up that they're that they're going for here, and that's uh, and it looks vaguely Sally Kellerman ish, I would say. Yeah. It's acceptable, yeah. Uh, and usually the, like, we haven't really talked about what the art looks like. It's not really Serpent. It's, you know, like the classic who's who. It's, uh, but they, they use, like, a monochrome uh, color scheme, pe- color palette on each of the background uh, elements. But here, the, where it possibly it was designed for the that big headshot to be in, the monochrome, which would be green in this case, right. uh, they decided to color it naturally, and I mm-hmm. think it really pops because of it. Especially since yeah. her her like her body figure, her figure itself is kind of small uh, comparatively, but the you know the close up really works well. It, it's it's it, that's I was going to bring that point up about the the artwork. I'm glad you did, Cisco, because this is what the who's who annuals became with the, where the surprint was no longer really surprint, but right. was just black ink with a monochrome color. Like, like he said, and that, I, I think that it's kind of odd that it, I guess it began here, I guess, because regular who's who was still running. As you said, it was wrapping up. So, yep. Yep. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I've always liked Sally Kellerman, sort of an actress, she's in the the movie Mash and stuff like that, and so I like that. I mean, I like Where No Man Has Gone Before, even though some of the Star Trekiness is not really set in stone because it's so early in the show. But uh, I, I like her with her little, you know, creepy eyes. I don't know. I just yeah. sort of enjoy that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and she's uh, the first. Uh, she's the first Starfleet counselor ever, and ah, then we never right. see one again, and for another, uh, you know, twenty years. <laughs> Well, because the, the 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 role of a Stark a fleet counselor proved so useful. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling. <laughs> I sense he's angry, Captain. <laughs> he's foaming at the mouth. Of course, he's angry. <laughs> She's quite sharp at picking up the subtle social cues. Yeah. Very, very I good. imagine Deanna Troy just phoning it in. Uh, Klingons angry, Ferengi uh, uh, greedy. <laughs> Romulan, uh, I don't trust them. Duplicitous, you know. Yes. Let's phone it in. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, well, okay. The next up is an alien race. I think you describe them as bald. These are the Deltons, who first appeared in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, joined by Michael Bear. These three, the main, the, the main Deltons we see is the, the main guy, and then the two women. This really looks like an alien health club ad. <laughs> I hate the Deltons. <laughs> I hate them so much. <laughs> the hornier version of the Beta Zids. Uh, oh you know. God! <laughs> it was like, how will this ever work? How how does this concept work? How would it have worked in in uh, you know in Star Trek Phase Two or whatever it was called? You know, it's oh Lord, and <laughs> it did not work. It did not work visually at all either. Um, oh. There. You know the the, the bald Ilya. Uh, how do you pronounce it? Ilya yeah. uh, isn't more sexy because she doesn't have any hair, and it's, it's just so awkward, <laughs> so awkward a concept. Oh no, we well we we've you know we've pledged never to have sex because uh, if we have sex off our planet, uh, everybody's gonna go crazy. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like oh man, what is this dumb? And then the picture here. Doesn't make me, you know, doesn't make me feel the 
the the sexiness uh, and the picture of well, it's not Ilya, it's it's the robot version, the the probe version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's got the robot. Yeah, and she looks like you know, dead eyes. It's <laughs> it's, so, it's so awful. <laughs> I don't mean the art is necessarily terrible. It's just this whole concept. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, if I think if we can all agree that if there was one Federation planet that our buddy Shag would want to live on, <laughs> it would be Delta. <laughs> I don't know what his opinion is on bold women. I don't know if that's a thing. So that might be like one of those Twilight Zone uh, irony planets where none of the women are hot on the planet and Shag's stuck there. It would be... <laughs> it's like his glasses yeah. break or something, you know? Like, oh no, I can't tell. So yeah, I, I I know Gene Hendricks loves the motion picture and a lot of people. I despise the motion picture. I think it's the worst. I think it's the worst of the, all the original cast movies. I don't like these characters. I never liked anything about them. Yeah, I yeah. just, just ugh. don't say and a lot of people. It's Gene Hendricks and maybe some people. Okay, it's, it's and not I, and a lot of people. I, you know, I feel like it's. I think that it's getting a reappraisal from some people, and it's making yeah, and they're wrong. They're just wrong. But all right, whatever. So I have uh, to say, yes. If, if 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 you're gonna if you're gonna have draw an over sexualized culture then Michael Bear is the perfect guy to get because he always draws everybody in some provocative pose. Yes. He, he draws an over-sexualized mall uncle, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, he's the perfect guy for this. Yes, yeah. Everybody here is skimpy and muscly beyond belief and stuff like that. So, yeah. Uh, you can only do so much. So, all right, we have another alien race, the Alasians from Ellen, uh, Alien of Troyes. This is drawn by Kevin McGuire. Yay, Kevin McGuire. And inked by Michael Bear, so he's doing uh, double duty here. This is a much better listing uh, all around in terms of, you know, the, the, the sexiness of it, the poses, everything else. I think, you know, I mean, I think he's got more to work with here, even though the, even though their costumes are on the little, again, on the doofy side. But uh, I, think it's, I think it's a much better listing overall. On the doofy side, but off model, because they never wore this in the show. I mean... The this headgear and this weird plaid pattern. They wore an outfit that was literally made from like red placemats. Uh, they, they were, <laughs> the guards did. They were literally made from placemats. But if you, I mean, it's a, it's it's lots of red and orange and and uh, and yeah. And her outfit is not one that I don't believe she quite wore on. It's it's similar, but. This weird checkered pattern isn't really there, and it was mostly purple, and it's just kind of weird that it's it's like I don't know where this came from. I mean, it 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 looks enough like her that you know who she is, but it's and it's Kevin McGuire, so it looks great, but it's just like where did this come from? We'll we'll get a couple more characters, but with some you know weird outfits, and let's face it, the the Bill Thesis outfits on Star Trek are very distinctive. Very memorable. Oh, yeah. So there's no point in redesigning them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm looking at Elysians on, uh, right now on my computer screen, and it's like this really orange and gold, mm-hmm. and then there's like the, the this like it's a f- flowers with eyes in them, kind of psychedelic mm-hmm. front yeah. to it, which isn't mm-hmm. here at all, no. And, with, yeah. and they, don't, they don't use, they don't wear swords or anything. It's really, it's really an odd picture. 
it's a tribute to the Mego Star Trek line, where the characters <laughs> don't have any real resemblance to what they looked like in this show. The Gorn's the lizard, painted right, brown yeah. with a Klingon <laughs> uniform. Yeah. Mugadu has his hippie bell-bottom pants on. That would have been, yeah. It's a, 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 a meta-tribute. So, uh, Yeah, I... I I only vaguely I haven't seen this episode in a little while even though they're all on Netflix. I got I've been going through them all but I haven't finished yet. Uh I like the shot of Kirk wiping the tear away. That's kind of a yep. nice little bit. So mm-hmm. yeah, nice mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. All right, next up, here we go. Money shot time, people. The USS Enterprise. This is this is the big thing. The first appearance, of course, the cage, art by Joe Brzezowski, so we probably means it was stolen from some other artwork somewhere. Uh, <laughs> you can get away with it because you've got to swipe when That's you're drawing of course, the Enterprise. Yes, you've got to steal it the Enterprise. Now, unlike the checkup listing, which does not get into the events of Star Trek III, this does because this is a big deal. It mentions that the ship was, of course, destroyed at the end of Star Trek III. So, uh, you know, we all have to have a moment of silence for, for the USS Enterprise, and it mentions that there's another Constitution's class starship is recently named Enterprise and assigned to Captain Kirk. So we do see that. And so you know, tough to make this all that interesting. I imagine this ship is probably really tough to draw because just, you know, it's, it's just hard. It's just a little hard to do. But, uh, you know, I, well, otherwise, I think it looks pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to draw it well and technically well, but it's really easy to, you know, to, to, to doodle it, which was part of, the, of Roddenberry's plan. That's what he wanted from the ships, that, he, that you could draw it in, like any kid could kind of draw it right. easily and just make little balloon shapes. Uh, and you do see both Enterprises because there's like the, the refit, the big, the big picture is the refit, but in the background you see with the, like the, the older dish and older nacelles, that's the, uh, the TV show's Enterprise mm-hmm. flying in behind as well. So both are represented. And you get the Galileo, which doesn't get an entry. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, the Galileo's there. Yeah, it's nice stuff. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's I find that it's it's hard to do the perspective with the with the dish. It's just really hard to draw, and it's I, I've hardly I, I real feel bad for any of the Star Trek artists that had to draw it. Like Ricardo Villagran, I think he was the penciler on the main series for a long time. Like having to draw this ship constantly probably drove you nuts. It just it's yeah, tedious. As I'm like, can we please get inside to Kirk's quarters? Can we stop with the establishing shots? Because although I bet maybe if you drew it once or twice, you just then you had it. Then you could just flip yeah. it and you know and do whatever you had to do to just keep reusing it. Yeah, some people did use photocopies of, uh, you know, it was always the same picture of the Enterprise. You could tell it wasn't just swiped. It was, you know, photocopied out of technical manuals or whatever. Uh, I remember the Star Trek Next Generation comic was, you know, doing a lot of that. And you could actually see where there was the cutout around the... <laughs> <laughs> sort of see the cutout in space. Ugh. Matt lines. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. There you go. They're mat lines. <laughs> that's a good in-universe fix, Chris. That's good. I like that. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, that's the USS Enterprise. Uh, next up, the Excalibans from the Savage Curtain, drawn by Jim. Excalibians. Excalibians. Oh, Excalibians. I'm sorry. Art by Jim Reddington and Greg Feekston. Uh They don't look any better. It's a drawing. <laughs> well, this is really the the Excalibians from the comic because they did reappear in uh, in that like that those first uh, Star Trek issues uh, had the Excalibians trying to get a to get the the Klingons and the Enterprise, uh, well the Klingons and Starfleet to go to war, and then the Organians came back, and then eventually the Organians and the Excalibians 
kind of gotten to a war of, of their own over whoever gets to interfere with our universe. So, and, and in those comics, they were drawn like this, a lot more like, you know, humanoid figures than on the show where they look like a pile of manure <laughs> with claws. A smoking pile. Or... <laughs> I love the serpent of one of them turning in or turning back from into Abe Lincoln. That's good. And then I love that little doodle uh, of the Klingon. I just love his face. It just it just looks so gregarious, like you know, kind of like ready for battle. And then Kirk is squinting at him. I think that's 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 a great little facial detail. Yeah, this Jim Reddington. I, I don't recognize him. I looked him up, and he's another guy that didn't get work until the '90s for Marvel, mm. um, according to Mike's Amazing World. But he he actually manages to capture a decent Shatner likeness in his young Shatner and older Shatner here. I mean, you can tell that's who that is, which. In other, in other entries, sometimes you can't. Hmm. Uh, so I, I kind of like it. It's a little squat and stuff, but it's weird that they made the Excalibans, Excalbians, I always want to say that wrong, Excalbians, uh, more humanoid in the comic than they did on the TV show back in the 60s when you would think they'd had to make them as humanoid looking as possible. <laughs> that's that's kind of weird. That's backwards. Yeah. <laughs> I do like their little light, bright faces, however. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next up we have the USS Excelsior. Of course, this was the ship introduced in Star Trek uh, Star Trek III, uh, as Scotty refers to it as the bucket of bolts. This was the ship that uh, producer Harv Bennett originally wanted to transfer all of the crew of the Enterprise onto at the uh, end of Star Trek IV, and it was it, uh, was Gene Roddenberry, I think, that objected to that so strenuously. They decided to sort of have the difference and have them be on the Enterprise because uh, they felt that that was a little too much change to have them, you know, curl, kill Kirk's son and blow up the Enterprise and then have them move on to another ship. So the Excelsior is always, you know, I, I always just think of it as, as Scott, he calls it the bucket of bolts. It's just, you know, it's, he's able to sabotage it so easily. Uh, it, it's, it's oh, oh, go ahead, Cisco. It's a terrible drawing. <laughs> There's yeah. something dreadfully wrong with the way the uh, the saucer section is hinged on the body because it looks like it's turning its head to look at us. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, God, it's so weird. <laughs> do, do you think maybe that they had to reposition it because it was – because they didn't have enough room for the artwork versus the text and somebody <laughs> in the production crew like – you know, that cut around the, the saucer section and then just tilted it to fit in the box. <laughs> oh, my God. That's what it looks like. Oh, man, I hope that's not it. Well, it could be it. <laughs> it could be. See, did, Brzezowski did such a good job with the Enterprise. I can't see how he flubbed this so bad. I, I have to blame it on the production crew on this one. But it does I have that so. look a little. I have to say, having done many paste-ups in my life, and I'm sure, Chris, you're familiar with this as well, yeah, it it does have that look, and now that you said it, it does. And it, it I, it's funny the, the the Cisco the idea of that it's looking at us, where it's like everybody be quiet, it can hear us. <laughs> Captain Styles is like, move the saucer section forty five degrees. <laughs> Maybe it's got capacities we don't know about. But the 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 Kirk and crew did wind up on this ship in the comic series, so it, it does mention that here. So you know. That idea did survive in some form. It's it, this all this business about Sulu was going to get the ship before Styles. You know, to me, that doesn't really fit in with the movies as filmed. I know that was the original plan, 
in the you know before the the in the early phases of different scripts, but you know I don't know if that's from a novel where that actually was addressed or that's from him pulling from you know uh, cutting room floor stuff, but it just doesn't seem to to jive with with what we saw on screen to me. But then again, there's all that comic stuff that doesn't jive with they they have to they go around in circles to make it work. So you know. <laughs> Roy Thomas yeah, was brought in on Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Cisco. What were you going to say? No, no. I, I'm, I'm trying to read that part of it. Yeah, it's very strange, especially since this is. I mean, this would have come out way before uh, Undiscovered Country. Yeah. So it's not. You know, it's yeah, it's probably from uh, from from some alt canon source. <laughs> but yeah, it's weird that Sulu did wind up on that ship. Yeah. yeah. Right. I liked him on that ship, and I wanted a TV show, but, you know, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, we have a double-page listing. We have Fabrini from For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, drawn by Mike Lark and Tony Salmons, and John Farrell from Mud's Women, drawn by Jonathan Peterson and Dick Giordano. Uh, I don't have – I you know, I'm certainly seeing these episodes, and Mud's Women I really like. I always like the Harry Mudd things, but – these are they're perfectly fine listings, but outside of that, I don't have a whole lot to really say or even really think about them. Well, Natira gets an entry in issue two, and I think that covered for the world is hollow, and I've touched the sky. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't really know why they needed to do this one. And then Farrell was just a crew member that you saw. You know, I mean, he was like sitting. I, I just saw much women a week or two ago on TV, and. And he's sitting at the table when they're all deciding, you know, whether they're having a little hearing with, with Harry Mudd and, and, and the women. So, you know, and he does look always look very nervous and very bug eyed, which they bring up in this in this entry, even though it says, well, despite the fact that he looked nervous, he really wasn't. Uh, but here he looks like, you know, Reginald Barkley 1.0. You know, I mean, he looks like he's scared to death, you know, just he's holding his stomach like, like he has stomach pains. Yeah. Yeah, he's like he's apprehensive, and yeah, it's it's another Jonathan Peterson, but it's, it's inked by Dick Giordano, so it it looks a lot slicker than the than the other uh, the voice drawing that we got earlier. But this is this is an odd one that I think he he definitely just should have been riding the appendix. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But obviously, there there's probably some concerns where uh, if you want to you know have your two page spread of the Enterprise, then you need to sort of slot some right. entries, you know, and some alphabetically mm-hmm. who what fits where, but at the same time there's stuff in the appendix that could have had a page and then you just, yes. you know, move Benjamin Finney one and move them all one and uh still have, you know, still make it work. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh sorry, next up as you just mentioned Benjamin Finney drawn by Steve Bove and Del Barris. Of course, he first appeared in Court Martials. There's a lot of, of court, a lot of court martial drawings here. <laughs> Uh, uh, this drawing is, uh, I don't know. I can't tell whether I like it or not. It's, it's an okay drawing. It looks absolutely nothing like the character. Uh, it's another one of those, who is this person? You know, uh, if you didn't have his name up there, I'd say, this is some Commodore or that I don't remember or something, you know, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's funny. I think, I wonder if Alan Asherman doesn't secretly hate computers because in Cogley's entry, you know, of course, that's a whole point was that, you know, the computer can be wrong and and it proves that, you know, that, that Finney tampered with it in, in the episode, of course. 
Uh, but but here it even it even goes so far to at the end of the entry, it states that Cogley took uh, defended uh, Finney, and he actually said that well you know computers have this this man is he he basically had a nervous breakdown because you know all this stuff was getting logged into computer against him. I mean so it's it's like okay this this uh, irrational hatred toward computers is. To, to be fair, to be fair, that was one of the themes of the original series. Yeah, it was. You know, Kirk was always blowing up computers. Well, that's true. Yeah, that 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 is true. That was his, and and you know, that was his 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 hobby, really. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it mentions here that he is five eleven, one fifty. That is very skinny. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is beanpole skinny, and that, this drawing does not represent that body type at all. Yeah. I've learned, uh, doing a podcast on uh, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, I've learned that most of these height and weight things are completely askew from reality. <laughs> I remember yes. one. There was the girls really objected to. It was like one of the female superheroes was like 5'11", 140. And the girls were just or, gassed at that. Or she something. was probably 125. Right. It's always something like that. It's like all these people are muscular or boobular, and <laughs> they're all waifs. I mean, yeah. 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 Um, all right, so next up is uh, Jem from The Empath, drawn by Dennis Cowan and Mike DiCarlo. Love the drawing. I think the drawing is super. And he looks really terrific. I mean, I love the serpent, her sort of dancing in the background. I like her sort of doing the ballet pointy thing with her foot. It's a really terrific drawing. I, I like the drawing, but again, it's it's one of those cases where it doesn't really look like her outfit from the episode because she had that purple thing going on. And it's, I don't know if it's the colors. It might just be the coloring, uh, but it, it just doesn't, I mean, it, it kind of looks more like Audrey Hepburn in a nightgown. It does but, look you like know. Audrey Hepburn, that's true. <laughs> but you know it's it's really pretty. I mean, I, I, it's a it's a really well done drawing. I like it. But it's it's just another one of those. If they didn't say Jim up there, and if you just saw the figure of her without, you know, when she's treating McCoy there, I can I get who she is. But if she was separated from that, I don't know if I'd get that's Jim from the from the episode The Empath. But that's just me. Yeah, no, it's well the, the style is similar, but yeah, it's missing that purple and then the purple piece with the there's also like a big belt under there mm-hmm. um, that we don't see through this particular gauze but it's an interesting drawing because you really see the way they've tried to do just just the lines but the coloring you can see her legs through the diaphanous um, dress you know so it sort of continues the leg up through the um the the garment I think it's like it's pretty interesting, uh, but very cute entry. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. that's very nice. I'm I'm the uh, the actress that played Jem, Catherine Hayes. I didn't, I'm not that familiar with outside of this role in Star Trek. She was she was on a soap opera my mom watched. Okay, <laughs> hmm. all right, interesting. So whatever it was like a soap opera on CBS. That's that was my mom's channel. Was <laughs> it uh, as the world turns? I probably. Because I, I always wondered, I've never looked that up, but I wondered if that wasn't her. I need it to was, go to IMDb. It was either that or Guiding Light, which were the only oh, okay. two that were on when I came back from school. <laughs> okay. My I, mom watched them too. <laughs> I love these peaks into Siskoid's childhood. <laughs> I find them very entertaining for some reason. 
<laughs> so uh, next up, we have another Dennis Cowan drawing. This is inked by Greg Brooks. The Gorns. The Gorn is, of course, from Arena, which is my all-time favorite episode of Star Trek. Um, this has got, I mean, look, okay, I, I can argue that the pose is a little on the boring side, considering that the Gorn is one of the few characters you could do in a big action pose. That said, you get a lot of action in the background, in the, in the um, you know, the, the color, not the serpent, because there's not color, serpents anymore, but we see him about to smash Kirk with the rock. We see him getting kicked in the head by Kirk. Uh, the alien landscape bickles up of his face, and he looks suitably weird and creepy, and you can just hear that <laughs> sound. Uh, so I, I'm very happy with this listing. I, he looks big and muscular and scary, and I, I, I dig it. He's also wearing the wrong costume. That is yes. true. <laughs> What's the leopard print, man? <laughs> yeah, but he's cool. No, he's really cool. It's one of my favorite entries in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. I especially like uh, Kirk doing his flying feet you know the that that yeah. stupid martial arts move where he <laughs> kicks someone with both feet and then lands prone on the ground. <laughs> Bravo! Yes, that move, which hap- he does a lot. <laughs> uh, but but I like the angle on it. It's really interesting and dynamic. No, I I love this drawing. Yeah, me too. Did the Gorns? Did you guys know did the Gorns ever reappear anywhere, like in the comics or in the novels or anything like that? It, they reappeared in the in the Enterprise show. Yeah. Did they really? Yeah, they did like a CG version. Oh, I'm glad I didn't see that. <laughs> even though they weren't, even though they weren't supposed to ever encountered them before, <laughs> oh, <laughs> like yeah. many things on Enterprise. All right, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just pretend yeah. I didn't hear any of that. Just say but that it, they did yeah. not appear again. No, they've reappeared um, in in novels, and okay. it's hard to start to keep away from uh, from the Gorn. They're just sure. too cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Did you guys ever see that commercial for the Star Trek video game a few years back where Shatner's playing the game on the couch with the Gorn? <laughs> no. No. Look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. Oh, He's playing funny. the game with they recreate the original suit. It it it's really well done. And then they get mad at each other and start fighting. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrific. That sounds really good. I still have my Gorn doll. I still have my Gorn Mugo doll. I mean, it's it's the lizard in a Klingon outfit, but he's it's, it's still a Gorn doll. So, yeah, I'll have that. That's tomorrow. right. All right. Uh, now we're kind of back in the back in the weeds here. Uh, we've got Amanda Grayson drawn by Dennis Cowan and Greg Brooks again. These these do not look like they were drawn by the same people. No, really not. I don't understand this at all. This is, of course, the character from Journey to Babel. I, this is a pretty rough drawing. I don't. I. I. I almost wonder if these are wrong credits because I just can't believe this was drawn by Dennis Cowan. I really can't. Uh, it, yeah, this this one's pretty rough. I mean, I, I I can see a little Cowanisms here and there, but it. Yeah, I don't know if it was like lightly sketched by him and then heavily inked by Greg Brooks. Which let's not get into that. But um, <laughs> thank yeah, you. I, I, <laughs> but I, I don't. I don't know. I, it's. It, it, yeah, flipping. I mean, we've we've had three in a row, and it's like, ding, ding, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, it's odd. Uh, Amanda Grayson, of course, Spock's mom, and we see her with a. Well, I don't know what what the hell's happening in the background because uh, you do have right on the right side you have her as a younger woman, let's say, uh, talking to Spock, but in the top part. Spock looks super young, and she looks super old, like she's she's at least from the movies, as in the, you know, it's, it's kind Good of, point. 
I don't know what's I don't know what's happening there, uh, especially since Spock's costume kind of looks like it's just like a shirt, uh, like a sleeveless yeah. uniform. I don't know. <laughs> um, I spent the better part of a half hour last night uh, researching um, Amanda Grayson because I was sure that there was some source somewhere that tried to tie her uh, and Spock to Dick Grayson. <laughs> of course they did there is well, because there's I, I thought like because there's these um um you know who uh philip jose farmer is the that the sci-fi writer who wrote uh mm-hmm. river world and all that. uh he also wrote fake biographies of doc savage and of tarzan and i have those books and i i, I was i thought for sure uh there was like because he created like a genealogical links between various heroes uh, of pulp, including uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, you know James Bond, and they're, they're all connected wow. somehow. And the Scarlet Pimpernel and goes back. And I thought somebody had you, if not him, someone had used that whole connection. You know, because Spock once said, an ancestor of mine said that uh, you know that only happens in what is it, Star Trek Six when he refers to his ancestor being basically being Sherlock Holmes. Right. And, and I know someone did another genealogy where they put Arthur Conan Doyle in Amanda Grayson's family f- for that line to make sense. Uh, whatever. But, um, <laughs> so I, but I was sure I'd read that, you know, in those genealogies, somehow they put a, a Richard Grayson in there just so we could say that Spock was also, if Spock's ancestor was Sherlock Holmes, but also, you know, Batman through oh being God. the ward of... Oh, anyway. wow. <laughs> I, could, I could not find it again. I, I went through fanzines. I went through... <laughs> oh, my goodness. I went a little Jeez. nuts, and then I didn't find it. So maybe it's in my, in my mind. Maybe that's well, where it happened. Did you ever stumble across where she learned the Vulcan techniques of mind fusion and meditation? Because I read that and went like, say what? <laughs> <laughs> Since Just when? Like, how much can you learn? How much telepathy can you learn? (laughs) I know. It's like, isn't that like just part of their makeup that they can do with some of those things? I mean, and and when she was on Vulcan in Star Trek four, you just got that she was, you know, helping her son reacclimate to, you know, living, uh, you know, and, and, and not, you know, that she was, you know, teaching him some, how to master the techniques of, of mind fusion and, and meditate. Why'd they have to go through all that crud if she knew that? I mean, <laughs> I'm like, whoa, you know, where, where did where did that come from? I mean, that was just that was one of those I was just like, no, no, erased from head cannon. No. <laughs> if she was related to Dick Grayson, there would have been a powers and weapons section where they talk about she's an Olympic level athlete or something like that. <laughs> Oh, Lord, that's trying much too hard. Okay, uh, next up is The Guardian of Forever by Mike Clark and Tony Salmons. Uh, we see the big shot of him looking like a kind of, kind of looks like a, um, a big piece of licorice, really, I think. <laughs> this is that shot. And then they see the insets, and there's we see McCoy jumping into him, and uh, Kirk and Spock about to follow, and then the, the little flashbacks of the other characters. Uh, artwork's a bit rough. Uh, I would say, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is certainly, it certainly deserves a listing. This is one of the big, you know, sort of, 
you can't call him a character. I, I just said it's him. It's not a him. You can't call it a character, but it certainly deserves a listing. I mean, it's 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 the linchpin of one of the most famous episodes of the show. Yeah, definitely. And 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 I I think the the entries, you know, it actually covers uh, the city on the edge forever pretty well. Kind of surprised it doesn't go into yesteryear, uh, the 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 animated episode that where they it plays heavily. Uh, but, uh, it does say that, you know, Kirk and Spock, you know, basically use it as a, you know, on, you know, the weekends to just go back in time and have fun, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, sort of, shot around the sun. Yeah, it sort of refers to other stories as well in that way. I mean, it, it probably just means the animated episode, but, uh, it was used, uh, in a certain way for, in, uh, in the novels where, mm-hmm. uh, like in, um, uh, Yesterday's Sun and uh, Time for yeah. Yesterday, which was like Zarabeth and Spock had a kid, and mm-hmm. uh, Spock rescues him through the Guardian of Forever, and he becomes right. a Enterprise crew member before going yeah. back. I, I think there's sort of reference to that. That's one of the early novels, one of the best-remembered novels. Uh, so that's kind of a veiled reference to that, and we'll see there are other references to it later. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it does mention at the very end, it says, Kirk and Spock have used it most frequently at all for personal and professional reasons. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> Full access to the licorice all sorts. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like going to Old West Town. Oh, let's head over to the Guardian Forever. Sure, they, yeah, they use it like it's a tourist trap. You know, they, there's like a little gift shop where you can get Guardian Forever T-shirts and keychains, and all kinds of crap. <laughs> T-shirt that says "I changed the timeline." Yeah. <laughs> Edith Keeler must die. <laughs> So next up are the Hordas, drawn by John Byrne. This definitely feels like, considering that the Horda is not, it just looks like just a pile of crap. <laughs> I, think, I feel like Byrne must have requested this. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's, you know, considering what it is, it looks really nice. And we see Kirk, we see Spock studying it, and then there's Spock and Kirk, I believe, and they're hitting it with the lasers, and then there's the thing where it says no kill, burned into the ground. This is really Devil in the Dark. This is a great episode. This is one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. I think it's, I think it. this is one of the things that makes Star Trek unique and that it had that humanity, you know, and that, of course, the Horda seems like a villain, and then we realize the Horda is not a villain. It's actually protecting its young. I mean, it has a, it has a real sympathy for the underdog that, you know, I still think you don't necessarily see all that much in in fiction. So this is, you know, again, for a listing, it's hard to pull off, but I, I think it, it looks nice and, you know, it deserves it. It, she, I guess, or whatever, deserves it. Uh, it it or of, them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, I, I tend to think Burns, when he inks himself, sometimes his artwork's a little muddy. Uh, this really works here, you know, because, <laughs> uh, you know, that that uh, um, it, it works with the Horde. I've, I've always, something, for some reason, it stuck in my head. He always looked like a big moving meatloaf, or she did. Uh, I, I don't know why, but... Uh, the, the illustration of the Horda with the, the Starfleet uniform on is hilarious. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, that's, and Lieutenant, that's... Lieutenant Narat, uh, that's mentioned here and shown, is actually from the novels. It was a creation by Diane Duane, who wrote many of the those early novels and mm. best-liked novels. And she, uh, and she wrote some of the Star Trek comics as well and brought that character back into the comics. Uh, so you you see, uh, Lieutenant Narat is like one of the, the more alien crew members, but 
uh, it, she, it, whatever, has been there for uh, for a while. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I thought they liked the hoarders. Why would they ever make them security guards? I mean, you know, I mean, a Star Trek security guard. <laughs> they were trying to save this race, not destroy it. Come on. Oh, yeah. Turn them all to, into uh, red shirts. Yes. <laughs> red sashes. Yeah, yeah that, that shot of him, Chris, I agree. That shot of with the hoarder with the uniform on is it's just too funny for words. <laughs> Oh, uh, next up, uh, everyone's favorite, Ilya, from Star Trek The Motion Picture, drawn by Ron Randall. Uh, I, yeah, uh, we see her turning into the, you know, exploding there now with Decker at the bottom, and then she's she's doing the whole empathy thing. Uh, yeah, I never, I never caught into this character. I mean, I think that's part of the reason that I have such trouble with the motion picture. It's just, I just never found this character interesting in any real way, so yeah, this 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 entry just doesn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, the the Delton entry goes out of its way to say that Deltons have this great sense of humor. I mean, this <laughs> this never comes through in in the one member of the uh, of the race that we meet. Uh, <laughs> there's no charm to it. I mean, even less charm than Deanna Troy actually exhibited on on the TV screen. I, I love Deanna <laughs> Troy in the movies. I love her in the movies, but you know, really kind of dull in the on the show, and um, and this was the prototype for that. that. You know, the same exact relationship with Riker and Decker. And it's, it's all the same thing. Uh, anyway, the drawing's not bad. I, I like the I like the close up of her face in the background. Uh, although the other crew members, if that's supposed to be Kirk and some, maybe I I don't know who those people I think are. That's in the Decker and and Nurse oh, Chapel. Yeah. I mean Christine Chapel. Sorry. Yeah. Another horrid picture of Christine Chapel then. <laughs> I mean, wow. Uh, but, you know, most of the elements are, aren't bad. I, right? I do think it's interesting that, uh, that it mentions that, that Aliyah, you know, uh, saw in, in uh, Chapel that she was thinking about uh, Corby, which I, I don't, I'm not buying it because she, that was never brought up again after that episode that she was ever engaged to that guy. So uh, I think uh, I think I think she's trying to cover up for the fact that she forgot that she had a, a fiance before and after that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, let's let's just move on. We uh, this is one's much more fun to talk about. The Oceans from a piece Ooh, of the action drawn by John Byrne. Uh, that second guy really does look a lot like Vic Tabak, who of course played one of the characters. Uh, Byrne clearly has a lot of fun. The the little drawing of Kirk and McCoy, uh, Kirk and Spock, they are spot on of of Shatner and Nimoy. Those are yes. great little characters, and considering how simple they are, just a couple lines. And I love the the guys in the background, the Tommy Gun and the Gun Mall. It's a, it's a real. It's I love piece of the action. I think it's a funny episode. It ends. You know, I just it has one of humorous ending. Maybe they'll want a piece of our action, and then boom, cut the yeah. credits. Uh, this is a great listing. This is, it's a fun episode, and the, I think this listing sort of gives you that you know that feeling of sort of lightness. Yeah, I, I love it. I, the the fact that he's got Bella Ox mixed with his his glasses off in his hand and the toothpick in his mouth because he kept taking his glasses off and on in that episode just incessantly just you know from in you know four or five times per shot so i mean he captures that and it's and you even got kirk up on the table when he's 
when he's trying to get all the the gangsters to organize, you know, and it it's it's fantastic. You could tell Burns having a ball with this. Yeah, and even like the the way I mean, it's totally gratuitous. You don't need it, but seeing the planet from outer space and with the Enterprise floating there uh, just makes it gives it that weird, uh, you know, just the position because all the drawings are basically from Prohibition era. Uh, it, you know, there's nothing science fiction about it. Add that element, and then you've got that weird, you know, this is a Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's very, very nice. All right, next up, Cyrano Jones from the classic The Trouble with Tribbles, which I would, I, I think, it's safe to say that if, if you have anyone who's seen Star Trek, like if you've never seen a Star Trek, you've probably seen Trouble with Tribbles. I mean, that's like the episode, I would say, that you know, even non-Trek people have probably seen at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Drawn by yeah. Okay, Chris. You know, something happy about that. Drawn by no, Dan, slightly overrated. Drawn yeah, by I, Dan, I agree with Chris. I drawn, agree with Chris. Okay. Totally. Drawn by Dan Jurgens and Pablo Marcus. This does not look very much like the actor. Uh, Steve. I kind of think it does. Do you? Okay. I'm not. Yeah. A, I'm, I like right. it. All right. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a bad drawing. I just don't think it's. But you know. Okay. Uh, I like the current status as seeking employment. That's a nice little gag. <laughs> we see the bar fight in the background. We see the space station, which I had a model of when I was a kid. I was not a model oh. maker, but I had that for some strange reason. And then we see Kirk uh, getting in Cyrano's face with the triple in his hand. Yeah, the, the the picture of him down at the bottom doesn't doesn't really look like him. But the, I think the one in the the main shot, you know, I mean, I could instantly say, oh, that's, you know, even without looking at who that was, even without the tribbles, I could identify him. So, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's pretty nice. I, I like the, uh, I like the fact that they, you know, they do mention the, the animated sequel, but I kind of, kind of surprised it didn't get a little more play because, you know, Cyrano Jones is back in that episode and, and it, it's written by David Gerald too. And, and, uh, so it's you know it's another one of those cases where the it gets like a little little blip at the end and that's <laughs> that's it but maybe space I don't know yeah I might have skipped this one entirely since the tribbles do get an, an entry uh, which tells the same story but mm. uh, there are some interesting elements like I like the, the you know because he, he's doomed to clean up after himself at the end of the uh, of that episode and uh, it says base of operations deep space station K seven for 17.9 years <laughs> mentions the sentencing. So that's pretty good. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it's uh, how many times can you tell the story of the Tribbles? Twice would have been fine, you know, for me anyway. <laughs> you get a Deep Space Nine episode out of it too. <laughs> I, I love that episode. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Deep Space Nine, I have to say, but I love that episode. <laughs> yeah, that, that is fun. Uh, all right, Here. next up, uh, Edith Keeler, big, big character in Star Trek history, of course, from City on the Edge of Forever, drawn by Ron Friends and Dick Giordano. This is, I like, I this gives the idea of Joan Collins without it looking really like Joan Collins. Uh, and I have seen, uh, okay, this is very informal, and this is not even about the episode, but this is what I think of when I see this. In Star Trek Generations, sorry to bring it up, it's Star Trek Generations, <laughs> where we meet Kirk and he's in the Ribbon universe and he looks out and he sees a woman, his dream woman, and he goes, Antonia. And it's a woman that we've never met before. Most people that I that know enough about Star Trek to care, when they are asked what woman did they want to see waiting for Kirk in the Ribbon, they say Edith Keeler. 
Are you guys, I, are you, I don't mean to corner you in this very touchy subject, but are you like on board with that or who would you have liked to have seen uh, as Kirk's one true love? Yes, I am. Um, I would like to have seen her, but I would take Carol Marcus. I would take Miramani. I would take okay. anybody over <laughs> Ruth, over this made-up woman that <laughs> nobody ever heard of. Because yeah. Kirk had plenty of women to choose from. The Orion but... slave girl. <laughs> the Orion, yeah, Yvonne, Yvonne Craig. Yvonne uh, Craig. You know, uh, uh, but you know, I would have. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think Edith is is the uh, is the one. That's that's my opinion. Yeah, it's, she's the one that after you know after that happens, that's when he becomes a uh, galactic, uh, <laughs> a galactic Lothario, really. Because who cares? <laughs> who cares anymore? Uh, she she was the love of his life, and they were really they were really, they really were star-crossed lovers, uh, you know, tragic, and uh, it doesn't end because uh, because of any good reason except. You know, a terrible tragedy. So right. that's completely unresolved for him. And yes, that would have should have been Edith Keeler in that um, in the movie. And they could have got Joan Collins. They could have. Yeah. Yes, easily. Yeah. There's a very upsetting turn of phrase in this uh, entry. How she uh, Edith Keeler died under the wheels of a truck. <laughs> I think that's a little bit uh, graphic for me. Yeah. Because we don't see that. We we just we know. The, uh, the whole reaction, the the whole shot is is on Kirk's Shatner, reaction. right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's heartbreaking, but you know, to put it in words like this, <laughs> <laughs> her skull was crushed. But... <laughs> the driver it. crushed her and then backed over her again. <laughs> it's too much. I, I know it's not, and I know it's, it's not gory, but it's. It's too much. I would just it's kind of much. assume the impact of the the truck hitting her killed her, not that she yes. was actually run over. You know, because <laughs> doesn't it show? Does it? I, I thought it showed. Did it, does it not show her body in the road? No. It I doesn't. Don't think okay. So. I don't okay. Think so. I, I, okay. Maybe it doesn't. We know. see it in the Serpent here. Her about to about, about to get splattered by the truck. Yeah, that's we what we see. see. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a nice drawing. I like the uh, the the dual panel as the background. That's kind of a nice touch, just the way it's done. And these two oblong panels, and then her color. You know, the front figure is straddling both those panels. It's a nice layout. It's a again, Ron Friends underrated. Yep. Oh yeah, and his Kirk is very very good here. Yeah. 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 Nice stuff. Really it, good. It's like a Marvel comic, like made it into your DC comic when Ron <laughs> Friends. Because he has that, like, how to draw comics the Marvel way style. I mean, Absolutely, he's equal yeah. parts John Bushima, uh, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko. He can, like, turn it off and on. You know, he can yeah. be he can be Ditko over in Spider-Man. He can be Kirby over in Thor. And then you can generally just kind of, you know, channel Bushima. So it it's, it's I mean, you've got the, you know, you've got the Marvel radiating lines around the truck. You know, it, right. it's... Uh, it's very dynamic, yeah. uh, which is why it works so well with Daystrom and, and Decker. Yeah, for a character that's pretty boring visually, he, he gets a lot in here. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of visual interest uh, for this listing. So, nicely done, Ron, friends. Uh, mm-hmm. Next up, uh, Lee Kelso, drawn by Ken Penders and Greg Brooks, from Where No Man Has Gone Before. I, it's, this is not, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Why is this? This is the maybe the ultimate. Why is this here? 
do, I will say, and I hate to say this, looking ahead to issue two, uh, uh, Penders and Greg Brooks draw a better Gary Mitchell in that little profile shot of him in the hospital bed than what he gets in issue number two. Because that doesn't look a damn thing like Gary Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, but cool death pose for Lee, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he gets strangled by... Uh, by a uh, what a cable, mm-hmm. you know, he drops his communicator. I think that's pretty. That's a pretty cool shot. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, another console jockey. Let's put him behind the console, and then, <laughs> yeah. You know. uh, no, I don't. I don't hate it. I mean, it's not. It's not even a bad likeness, mm-hmm. as far as these things go. But um, Lee was sort of, uh, you know, one of the a pilot guy. Where, and I don't mean he was piloting the ship. I mean. He's in a pilot, and then he doesn't make it to series. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he gets buried on Delta Vega. Oh, lots of lots of tombstones on Delta Vega, including one for James R. Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that's your bugaboo, Chris. Is that James? R. <laughs> I think you spent ten full minutes on Supermates <laughs> bemoaning the James R. Kirk. Thing. You're very upset about that. Yeah. All right, let's let's get to something fun. Khan Noonien Singh, drawn by, drawn by John Byrne. I get the sense John Byrne probably threatened Bob Greenberger. Like, you goddamn better not give this to anybody but me. It's the spitting <laughs> image of Ricardo Montalban. It looks terrific. He manages to fit in all the st- – well, not I, okay, not all the stuff, but he fits in really all the big stuff from – Space Seed and from Star Trek 2, we see him there with Martha McGivers. We see him there doing his little, you know, yoga thing. Uh, we see him about to set off the Genesis torpedo. And then we see him lifting Chekhov in the air with a great profile shot. Yeah, that's uh, I, great. I almost think this probably could have maybe been two pages. Maybe not. I don't know. I, I, I think Khan is important enough to Star Trek history that he, it would have been fine if they had done it and given them artwork more room to breathe. Uh, they maybe yeah. didn't have much more to say, but uh, you know, considering he is one of the big villains of the Star Trek universe, it seems weird that he gets just the one page. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it would have been kind of neat to see Khan from Space Seed and then Khan from Wrath right. of Khan, right. like standing side by side, like who yeah. would do time to time. Because I yeah. like his young Montalban, and you know, especially doing the famous yoga, yoga breathing exercise, you yeah. know. Where he sucks in all the air out of the room and then the, you know exhales. <laughs> yeah. I think Byrne does a better job with the backgrounds than the the full figure. Uh, like the you know Khan's face is a little a little uh, sketchy in the main picture, mm. but uh, but yeah, that bottom one where that's where all the the attention goes, where he's lifting Chekhov. In the the hull of the uh, Botany Bay, that's a really cool picture. And there's even a little tiny figure of him in his in his sandblaster outfit, way in the background there, where mm-hmm. he's got the visor. Oh, yeah. It's tucked. I just realized that in the shadows there, which is is that's a nice little detail to shove in. Kylo Ren, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's also Kylo Ren outfit, yeah. Yeah, there's also a very small piece where you see the Botany Bay and the Enterprise in the same shot. Mm-hmm. By his elbow, yeah, he really crams oh, yeah. a lot of stuff in there. Oh, gee, yeah. wow, I never even noticed that all this time. Yeah, it's great, great. The SETI Alpha Six blowing up beside yeah, SETI Alpha Five. Yeah, yeah, very nice, very, very well done. It's, it's, yeah, it's a great. And it mentions that he dies quoting Moby Dick at the end, 
which of course is one of the great death scenes. So, um, so anyway, all right, now here it is. Isn't it funny that these two characters are right next to one another? James T. Kirk, of course, first appeared where no man has gone before. Uh, this is drawn by uh, uh, Tom Sutton and Pablo Marcus. He gets three pages. Superman didn't get three pages. Batman didn't <laughs> get three pages. Captain Kirk gets three pages. Yeah. <laughs> well, you bet. Uh, it's uh, Captain. It's uh, Will Ferrell is Captain Kirk in the main image, though. I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tom Sutton did draw the Star Trek comic. Uh, for uh, for a bit, so it makes sense that he's you know he's being used for some of the main characters. But I and and I do like Tom Sutton. Uh, I, I like many of the comics he's done, but usually when it's more of the creepy stuff, like Squalor or Hacker Files and that kind of stuff, um, his Star Trek characters aren't necessarily as good. I feel like you know it's... the Kirk pose is a little dull. You know, he's just standing there, and Kirk could have... I mean, we see him in action in both ways, in the background. But I, I feel like, you know, it might have been more dynamic to have him, like, holding a phaser or something. But instead, he's just, just sort of standing there. Yeah, or it, if they could have got him in the chair, doing the, you know, the Kirk lean in the in the captain's chair. Yeah. I mean, we do that's get more we do, Yeah, we do get two shots of him, though. Two color shots. We do get him as in, in, in his... Admiral, Admiral outfit, and we get him, of course, in his captain's chair uh, in his classic uniform. So we do – that's unique in that, that they have the space and they devote to that. And we see him in the clinches with uh, Edith Keeler, and we see mm-hmm. him there with Carol Marcus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 not, it's variable. Right. Yeah, it's variable stuff because yeah. like, like the, the close-up on the first page, the close-up of his face is really well done in the back. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of um, – uh, a lot of personality in the the next picture where you see uh, Spock and uh, you know like Kirk is kind of laughing at the dynamic uh, between his friends uh, down there. Uh, so there, there's a lot of you know, and it, you also get Spock's death, and but sometimes you also get like the very last piece where it's uh, TOS era working the consoles, Sulu and Chekhov, and Kirk's in the back. Kirk looks nothing like himself. Um, so, it, you know, it, ver- it varies from shot to shot. I think the main shot of TOS Kirk in color looks more like Adam West. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so just let, let that blow your mind for a minute. Adam West is, is James T. Kirk. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's my num- that was kind of my number one thing in the Star Trek comics, especially as a kid, is that there'd be some panels that were just like, bam, that's the actor. And then there were other panels where it was like, okay, now we're back in gold key territory, you know. Hmm. Uh, and it was the same artist, and uh, which is common in a in a book that's based on any kind of TV show or movie. Uh, you know, there's the, the, one of the few instances I can think of where they the artist completely got around that was uh, Jerry Ordway's adaptation of the first Batman movie, and he like did model sheets basically of like every angle of like Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson and, mm. and they look like it in every, they look like themselves in every panel, you know? And so, but that, that's the exception. This is the rule here. So, uh, and you know, it's for the most part, it's, it's fine. And I do like that they show a good cross section of Kirk's career. You know, he is doing the double fisted, fisted, you know, attack on the, yeah. the Klingon down here, which is cool, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, and they, in the entry itself, they 
uh, they pretty much cover everything you'd expect, which even his brother's death and my favorite, the Denevian neural parasite, you know, the <laughs> things, you know, I love those things. Uh, flying so, pancakes. Yeah, flying pancakes, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a very nice entry I, I, overall. So. Yeah, yeah, like there's like the assessment of some of his friends through logs and that it ends on the, those famous words. This is where they use them in the who's who. Happy once again, Kirk has been reunited with those who matter most to him, and he is out seeking new life forms and new civilizations, boldly going where no man has gone before. So they use it somewhere, and this is where they used it. They could have used it on Enterprise, or but you know, I think it's fitting here. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, and unlike Chekhov, who doesn't get Star Trek Four comment, and here, you know, yeah, they're caught up. Where this is where we've left him at the end of Star Trek Four. So yeah, it's a good, it's a you know, I mean, three pages, absolutely deserving considering he is, you know, the the fulcrum of the Star Trek Enterprise, uh, Star Trek uh, universe to this point. So yeah, well done, guys. And um, now we have a third huge character right in a row, uh, the Klingons, who get uh, three pages uh, as well. Uh, I mean, that's, they're trying to cover a whole alien race, of course. Uh, they're drawn by Dan Jurgens and Greg Brooks. We see all the various iterations of the Klingons, and then on the third page we have a close-up of Kruge. Uh So uh, I, I, the design is a little wonky. It seems a little loose here and there. There's the weapons just sort of floating around, and the ships seem kind of not really connected to anything exactly. Uh, but I like the drawings on the main two pages of them flying across the space background and the, uh, the Klingon reaching out and stuff like that. So uh, otherwise, otherwise it's pretty good. It's certainly verbose. We get a lot of information here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things they have to get across is, you know, all those, all those name Klingons, which I think is sure we get Lee Kelso and John Farrell and, you know, one shot ensigns, but for the Klingons, we do not get an entry for core. We do not get an entry for Koloth or for Kang. They're all smudged, you know, and they're all smushed into this one entry. Uh, and they'll do the same for the Romulans later, I imagine, because anyways, the Romulans are only called Romulan Commander, uh, both of them. But in this mm-hmm. case, you know, we do have name Klingons who are well-remembered in episodes that are well-remembered and who eventually, you know, showed up uh, as their older selves in later series. Uh, although, obviously, who's who doesn't know this? Um and including some of the cartoons, the animated series reused several of those Klingons, uh, and yet they don't get their own entries. They're all in this, which is kind of mm, I'm kind of sad about it. Uh, maybe they were just afraid that it would be, you know, all the the K's would be nothing, <laughs> nothing but Klingons. Because <laughs> Star Trek is a little preoccupied with the letter K, if you think about it. I mean, it's it is it is kind of strange um, how many K characters there are: Klingons, Khan, Kirk. You know, over and over, but uh, but yeah, I agree. Definitely, Lee Kelso, he was a K anyway. He should have got the axe for for Core or, or Kang. Kang. Kang's my favorite because Michael and Sarah. But yeah, <laughs> the, uh, but yeah. The, the, this Klingon listing features my my favorite first appearance detail, where it says first appearance parentheses swarthy, errand of mercy, <laughs> and then crests Star Trek the motion picture. Yeah, it yeah. tries. It tries one explanation for it, the, the simplest explanation for the uh, the different makeups, and it's uh, they're two different races. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, it even points out Simple. that like Koloth didn't have the the brown, the bronzed skin 
uh, like, you know, Kang and, and Core back then. It even points that out. So it's it's even making a case, well, there were already variations known, you know, and amongst the, you know, the, the swarthy Klingons. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's basically saying there could be like, uh, like there's a a one A and one B variation or something, you know. Yeah, and then Enterprise uh, actually did explain it later by saying it was like a genetic di- di- disease that forced all the Klingons into a more humanoid, human-looking uh-huh. form. Okay, all right. I do have to say, uh, I've said Arena is my favorite Star Trek episode, but Day of the Dove a close second. That really? Mm. Yes, I love Day of the Dove. I think it's a great. Right. Yeah. I'm not I, like sure. Mike, I, I love the, I love Michael and Sarah in the role, uh, but it's also got like Chekhov trying to rape a woman. Uh, mm. you know, that's, I know he's under the influence of the the thing, right. but it's kind of icky. Yeah, mm. uh, that is true. That is true. Uh, yeah. So uh, we have another Klingon next up, Konam from Star Trek number one. Uh, she's quite as you mentioned. This is the first Klingon to join the Federation, beating Worf by a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, a couple. Yeah, a couple well, of years. In the, three, in the world years? of Star Trek publishing, a couple of years within yeah, the world of Star exactly. Trek itself, several hundred. Yeah, like seventy years. Or, uh, yeah, no. Konam was uh, like uh, the the first good Klingon. He gets rescued by the Enterprise, and um, you know, and is immediately exiled by his own people for collaborating with them. And he winds up marrying Nancy Bryce. We see them there in the Serpent, uh, getting yeah. all uh, noogly with one another. And of course, <laughs> Bear, that set off Bear Claw. <laughs> Everyone's favorite Bear. marriage. Yeah. Is that who's waving his arms like a madman? I couldn't, I couldn't tell who that was. <laughs> I don't know, it doesn't look like him. It's I don't know what's what's happening. Kirk doing like a boo. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's happening there. They caught uh, Shatner in mid arm flailing. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, it could be. Bar- I'm not sure. Again, Tom Sutton sometimes is a little scratchy, and you, you're not too sure what you're looking at. Yeah, I, uh, I, I should have mentioned this is Tom Sutton and Del Barris. It's sort of interesting how this whole issue is just basically kind of using about six artists and then just mixing and matching them. Some of them are inking, some of them are penciling, some are doing. But you know what I mean? Like we're seeing a lot of the same names in different formations throughout the, as the as the pages go on. Yeah. yeah, but he's the only Klingon that gets his own entry uh, after that Klingon entry. But of course, because he's one of the uh, the stars of the, the Star Trek series itself. Right. It is amazing Krooge did not get a listing that he didn't rate. See, I mean, yeah, main yeah. villain of one of the movies. You know, I mean, if the, if we can give two pages to the to the friggin' Deltons, we can do. I mean, come on, what's going on? <laughs> All right. So uh, anyway, uh, next up is uh, Roger Corby. From what are little girls made of, drawn by Jim Reddington and Bernard Sachs. There's a name from out of the past. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, wow. I jeez. Uh, this re- is a pretty rough listing, I have to say. Yeah, it doesn't look anything like the actor or the costume that he wore either. So it's the, another the, one of those. The anatomy is pretty wonky. He has very tiny little feet. <laughs> Man. <laughs> Oh, holy shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't noticed. How does he not topple over? I don't understand. The the, the drawing of Ruck and and uh, Andrea in the back is is uh, is better than than Corby. Yeah, <laughs> which you know, 
<laughs> Which, why didn't Ruck get an entry? Come on. Everybody everybody loves Ruck. And, well, everybody loves Sherry Jackson, too. So she probably should have gotten it. Yeah, if only they'd, they'd starred in court, in court martial. But, yeah. You know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I do like the. I mean, yeah, it's off model. It's totally off model. Not wearing. It's actually a sort of better, better uniform than what he wears in the show. Uh, yeah. But I do like, like you know, that we see him reveal his android nature, like the rip and the glove, and I, I'm not sure how it all connects to the. To, you know, it happens in the show as well, uh, and doesn't look like this. But I kind of like, I kind of like the the graphics of it. Um, the way the way it's all staged, but no, you're right. It's he's, he's not. He doesn't even have the right hair color in this. Yeah. Mm-mm. So it's off model in every in every way. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, so next up we have uh, Thomas Kyle, drawn by Ken Penders and Mike DiCarlo. Now this I don't see one whit of Ken Penders in this. Really, I really see Mike DiCarlo. This seems like a very <laughs> heavily drawn. Maybe maybe it was like Ken Penders just sketched the body and. DiCarlo finished it up because this really looks like a Mike DiCarlo drawing. He, of course, appeared in Tomorrow's Yesterday, and he appears in uh, Star Trek Two. He's uh, he's unnamed, uh, but he is he is in Star Trek Two. I thought that was a nice detail that they went and got that actor and got him to come back, even though you know it's just like a minor part. That's a nice little piece of continuity, yeah. and that's where he looked like Green Arrow right. uh, <laughs> first time because on the show he, he didn't have the beard, right. so but he appeared a lot. I mean, Mr. Kyle was the the original Chief O'Brien, you know, he was the, right. the mm-hmm. transporter guy that they use frequently. Who would sometimes be at the helm as they draw him here and sometimes have a yellow shirt, a gold shirt. <laughs> so I thought, I thought that was interesting. It was like, oh, he, when he changes his, uh, you know, duty, he, he switches divisions on the ship. <laughs> I like that there's quotes from him about what happened in Star Trek II. He's like, I was aboard when Kandunin Singh was first revived and tried to take the Enterprise. I was also on the USS Rely. Like, I, I like that idea that like we're hearing this side character talk about what happened in a movie that we are familiar with. That's a, I don't know, that charms me for some reason. Yeah, and it does reveal that you know the the crew that was stranded there on uh, Seti Alpha was not did not die; that they were rescued. Right, so spending uh, close to a week on that world, Kyler was nearly dead, but he, yeah, they do get rescued. Thankfully. Yeah. I always think of that. There's one episode where Shatner cannot pronounce Kyle's name. And he keeps calling him Cal. Uh, it, it's. I think it's, that was a power move, to be honest with you. <laughs> you say you say Kyle, I say Cal. You say sabotage, I say sabotage. Yeah, you know, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Thomas Kyle, low energy, sad. It's a, it's his Canadian accent. Good drawing, good listing. I like all the stuff in the background, all the tech stuff, and he he's kind of got like a little bit of a superhero he pose, hands on hips. It's it's a little more exciting. It's good. Yeah. I like it. And I think they did it well here. The monochrome is very dark, so that his red uniform and blonde hair really pop. So there's a good, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, good stuff. All right, next up is Frank Leslie from Where No Man Has Gone Before, drawn by again Ken Penders once again. Greg Feaston. I love the little action pose between his legs. There's something about that pose just charms me. Where he's, he's barrel barrel rolling that guy. Like I just I don't know. I just find that very funny. This is one of my favorite entries. <laughs> if you ever wanted to know what Star Trek would look like drawn by Jack Kirby, here it is. Yeah, right, yeah, there yeah you go. very much. 
Uh, and it's not just the art, it's the, the whole story, because who is Frank Leslie? Who is this character? And he's, he's uh, really, he was the character played, well, the character, the characters played by Eddie Paskey, who was a regular extra and a uh, stuntman on the show. So he's like in like 50 episodes. Uh, you know, he was basically a stand-in who never had any lines. So, um, and he's usually a red shirt. Well, he, he only dies like once in Obsession. I think he's, he's one of the guys that yes. gets... Uh, blood sucked by uh, mm-hmm. by that vampire cloud but um, uh, so he's in the entry he's ridiculously competent at every job and uh, he's you know he's uh, in on the show he's had other names he's been like Rand and Connors and but usually there's uh, like a few episodes where he, he gets called Mr. Leslie and from then on that, that's his name um, and it does say in his own words, uh, he jokes that he has a resemblance. One of my best assets is my re- resemblance to Captain Kirk, and then he remembers <laughs> being, you know, just mistaken for Captain Kirk on whatever planet. But yeah, he was a stand-in for Shatner, and he was a stuntman for Shatner. So uh, that's all like little inside jokes. So this is like one of the characters that appeared in the most episodes, but never had a line to say. They, they say he's quiet, and you know that's part of his profile. It's a very man of few words, but it's all jokes about this. You know, this guy that had a regular job on the set. Yeah, I think the one the one thing he said the the Kirk is in the entry. He said when they were all leaving the ship when the spores you know, took him over and he's like, this is mutiny. And Kirk says, and he says, yes, it is. You know, that's like, that's his one line in all of Star Trek, even though he's on like 50 episodes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I love that they put the end joke in with, uh, with him because I've been reading, I've recently read the, these are the voyages books. Uh, and, uh, you know, they detail all the, who stood in, who was the stand in, who was the, you know, what, what they were, I mean, like almost by, by minute, what was going on on the Star Trek set. And there's a lot with Eddie Paskey and a lot of uh, uh, interviews, uh, quotes from him. And so this this made me chuckle reading this. So I totally give it a pass, even though, you know, the character as drawn does not look at all like the actual Mr. Leslie. Mm-mm. Who had like, like yeah. curly hair and, uh, you know, so... Although they make him look like he could be a passable uh, comic book Captain Kirk, yeah. which fits the story here. Yeah. 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 All right, uh, we're gonna we're down to the last three entries, and we're gonna end big because we got some big characters here. We have Carol Marcus, Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan, drawn by Kevin McGuire and Art Nichols, which make for a very nice combination. Uh, I really like the little inset of them at David's grave. I think that's a nice little thing. That's something, of course, we never got to see. Uh, at least, in, you know, live action form. Maybe they did it in the comic or something. I'm not I'm not familiar with it. And you do get a certain amount of what happened to Carol Marcus post-Star Trek II. Now, is that... Do you guys know? Was this actually chronicled somewhere? Uh, I was going to ask Siskoi that. <laughs> uh, my feeling is that uh, we do see Carol Marcus in the comics after post Star Trek two. So, um, it's maybe coming from that. I can't remember what the stories were like, uh, but they do meet up again and they do discuss uh, their son's death, uh, in the comics. I think it's like in an annual probably, but, um, it could also be from straight up, you know, the, the, the movie adaptations, the novel adaptations of the movies, uh, that always tend to give more detail, but, I'm not sure of the source, but yeah, it's from the it's either from the comics or the adaptations, 
probably from the comics. Yeah, it mentions the setting up of the Dr. David Marcus Research Center and that she's heading it up. So it's a nice detail. And I said I really do like just the little body language that McGuire gets in of her head is on his shoulder and her ar- his arm is around her. It's, it's, a, it's a great little detail. Yeah, and there's mm-hmm. a kindness to the like the the main figure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's wearing sandals. <laughs> I'm not happy about that. That's that yeah, I'm big on that. Yeah. Odd, but um, she's not a hippie. Yeah, no. She's a doctor. <laughs> she's a bit of a hippie. In the story, I, I mean. I think it's interesting between this and the next entry. I don't know if you guys caught this, but. Asherman is trying to I think he's trying to make Kirk look less uh, less of a deadbeat because <laughs> he says that that Kirk that David did not know that Kirk was his uh, father and that Kirk didn't know about him. And I, it's like, no, Kirk plainly says I did. You know, I, you know, yeah, I did I what you away. Stayed away. Yeah. yeah. And and David and David also knew who his dad was, I'm pretty sure, uh, from watching Star Trek too. So I, I ain't buying it. You, <laughs> you can try to make it Kirk not look like he's, you know, not uh, sending his, his, uh, checks, you know, in, but, uh, space checks. credits or whatever they have. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's in both entries and I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, the, the one other detail that it mentions here at the very end, and it says, for months after the establishment of the David Marcus Research Center, the Klingon High Command requested the help of its facilities to aid three threatened planets within its sphere of influence. The UFP and Carol Marcus gladly gave their guarantee of cooperation. Now, considering that Kirk's hatred of Klingons stemmed from the murder of his son, and it was a thread that they used for three successive films... Did Carol Marcus bear no ill will towards the Klingons for killing her son? She just, it's the word gladly that, that really sort yeah. of, I'm like, really? She was just like, ah, no, it's all good. Like, they did murder her son. This is why it's probably comics continuity, because in the comics continuity, you know, Kirk takes a Klingon into his crew uh, after, well, after Star Trek II, and then Star Trek Three happens, and Konam is still aboard the ship. It's, um, you know, so they couldn't he couldn't use that necessarily. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure Kirk is is. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure Kirk's arc is well followed through the extra canon necessarily right, because right. You, you don't know that's where it's going. Yeah, you know, even <laughs> right. in Star Trek Six, it's a, it's kind of surprising. Yeah, he uh, kind of turns much. on a dime a little. Uh, I think at the end, I think well, it becomes more and more bitter. Yes, in it's, the beginning, yeah, that, he's very hateful in the beginning, yeah. But I don't think well, Shat- Shatner fought against the line "Let them die." Let them die line, yeah, right. Yeah, he did not like that, and I think as it was filmed, there was something before that that the way they cut it has him say "Let them die" that way, and it was not filmed that way. And I can't remember what it was, but there was another bit. Yeah, no, I, that. I I do remember it. He talks about that, that he does a facial reaction that as soon as he says "Let them die." He threw in a facial reaction of like, "Oh, I can't believe I said that." Like he yeah, immediately it regrets it. And yeah, that's, that's in there. Was. Yeah, and that's it, in there. The facial reaction is there, but I think the I think Chris is right that they tricked him into kind of saying it. Like it's not exactly the same. He didn't, you know, he didn't play it exactly that way. They just edited it that way to make him say yeah. it. 
because he wouldn't. But but Kirk by that point. But you know, Kirk in Star Trek Three first at first tries to save Krooge. Yes, mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah. And then uh, he, well, I've had enough. <laughs> You're still <laughs> trying to kill me. You know, boot to the head. But, uh, <laughs> but his, you know, his first instinct is still to save him and make him face trial or whatever, capture him. Uh, he's still a humane character. But by and in Star Trek Five, it's not really an issue, even though they go up against Klingons. So it's really by Star Trek Six, the resentment is built up. And he's like the older, he's an older Kirk, and perhaps we've missed parts of the story. Um, you know, it's it's up to us, I guess, to, to figure it out. But in the comics, he was off Star Trek II, then off Star Trek III. Um, so it's not clear that he hates Klingons yet, and the comics didn't really make a meal of it. <laughs> it's a good make a meal of it. That's good. Uh, okay, so next up, the uh, other member of the Marcus family, David Marcus, drawn by Dennis Cowan and Bill Ray. Uh, it looks he's a very sort of uh, um, kind of angry looking version of Merrick Buttrick, but I think it looks pretty close to him. the The shot of Kirk does not look like Kirk at all. Not, that likeness is pretty off. It looks like Johnny Cash. Uh, but we uh, we we see that in the in the serpent um, we see the Klingon about to put the whammy on him there as he's as he's uh, rescuing um, uh, Savick and what looks like baby Spock. That's a very tiny Spock. It's a very tiny Spock there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's David Marcus, and it mentions you know what happens what happens so many dies and then he gets a lot of history considering he was really only in one and a half movies. But I mean, obviously he's pretty pivotal to the whole story. I think I know why he's angry. He's angry because they misspelled his name. This is the entry for Marooks. Marooks. Oh my God, David. you're right. It says that. <laughs> I've never noticed that. <laughs> Wow, I never have either. I have never I think, noticed yeah, that. Oh my proofreader, god! Proofreader, proofreader was uh, was pretty tired by this point. <laughs> oh god! Page wow. forty six. Oh wow! Oh jeez. Okay. Wow. Who was right. your classic who's who proofreader, Rob? I can't think of her name. Brenda Pope. Where is she? Brenda Pope. We, we needed her Brenda for this. Pope? Yeah. Would this be Carl Gafford, copy editor? Is that? David Carl Gafford's. Oh my goodness, David Baruch's. That's embarrassing. What did you guys think of Merrick Buttrick as Kirk's son? Oh, I liked him. I, I liked I liked Merrick Buttrick, and uh, I think we brought this up on our on the Film and Water episode on Star Trek Three. I liked him in Square Pegs. Square Pegs. Uh, yeah. So um, I, I think, uh, and we discussed that on Star Trek Three that he was, you know, he had just enough of the the Kirk in him. Uh, to get himself in trouble he could not get himself out of. And I think he portrayed that pretty well, you know. Uh, I, I, I really liked him, and I understand why he had to die, and, 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 and maybe, you know, he was probably more of a, uh, a pivotal character in death than he, than he was in life, you know, in many ways. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I would have liked to have seen more of him, uh, you know, maybe in between, you know, uh, somewhere. I don't know where that would have been back then, but uh, I liked him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it. Yeah, he had that insolence, mm-hmm. and yeah, he was pretty insolent in the in the Star Trek Two, which was, which really was Kirk's attitude as well. So there was a mirror there. I don't think the. I mean, he was more of his. He looked more like his mother. 
blonde and uh it, it didn't feel like the casting when was necessarily oh yeah this is Kirk's son I don't know but um but in the performance it was there and he dies heroically uh he just doesn't have the skills his father has basically yeah. but uh he had the same impulse the same instincts and then, I mean, um, I was listening to that Film and Water episode just this week. I'm trying to catch up uh, on on all the podcasts I missed during the summer, uh, including those. And um, you talked about it then, and it's so true. It's that, that moment when Kirk falls off his chair, basically, when he hears that uh, David is dead, is is a gut punch. It's really one of the... Best moments that uh, Shatner and Kirk has in the entire film series. Um, so in yes, in death, David takes on a a quality that he might not have had in life. In life, he could always go, well, the, you know, Kirk's son's kind of lame, or uh, he's not really following in his father's footsteps, or he's kind of annoying uh, because he's opposed to the hero that we like. Mm. But uh, in death, he becomes he becomes the you know he's he's very important at that moment, but he's the motor. He's basically the you know the motive force behind Star Trek VI, which is my personal favorite Star Trek film. So, um, you know, his ghost is is an important character. Hmm. He's uh, the Jason Todd of the Star Trek <laughs> universe before. <laughs> They brought him back. <laughs> it's funny. Speaking of, of death, uh, in uh, contrast, this quite to you talk about how for the Edith Keeler listing, they get too detailed about her death. Here, they mm-hmm. get very vague. It says the Klingons took the trio prisoner. Subsequently, David Marcus was killed. And that's all they say. I mean, if you didn't see Star Trek Three, you wouldn't necessarily know that he was killed by the Klingons or that he died saving the life of Savrick and or Spock. It just sounds like he was killed. Well, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean the planet blew up. It could mean a giant, you know, balsa wood boulder fell on him. I mean, we don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I, that's that's interesting that, that, you know, his best moment is not not explained. Yeah, it downplays his heroism. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And and it, it's kind of – we talked about on that Film and Water episode how with the moment he is stabbed is so – I mean, there's that guttural that sound, oh, yeah. sound from Buttrick that's just like, oh. Yeah, and, and it, then the, it, the totally deadpan Savick going, <laughs> David is dead. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody picks on Robert Curtis. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I like it. It's, it's a contrast to what's happening. It's yeah. like so this is how the news is delivered to Kirk. Yeah. Uh, yeah, brutal. freaking, yeah, yeah brutal. Yeah. And yeah, then Klingon knife, true. the way that it has the two extra points, it feels like it yeah. gets you the first time with the main point, and then it gets you again with the two side points. Like, ugh, rough yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's good. Mm. All right. So, goodbye, David Marooks. So, finally, uh, <laughs> we're going to end with, I can't believe I've never noticed that. I've had this comment for 30 years. Uh, we're going to end on a big one. Leonard McCoy. Leonard Leonard H., son of David, Dr. McCoy, (laughs) first appeared in the Corbin Might Maneuver, drawn by one of the greats, Gray Morrow. If you need somebody to capture a likeness, you get Gray Morrow. Uh, He was also good at topless women, but in this case, we don't need him for that. We have him in Leonard as Dr. McCoy. The the main image is a big close-up, spitting image of DeForest Kelly. 
as Dr. McCoy. We see him in the background with Kirk. We see him there as a solo shot. We see him uh, giving some medicine to Kirk. We get a couple different things. A couple different things. We see him there in his his sort of um, away jacket when he was down in the on the planet Zerter Two. We have Con Spock looking looking mad. It's a great. I think this is a great listing. I mean, it's a great Morrow. One of my favorites, and I think it's a you know perfectly. It's a great image and a, a, a wonderful tribute to DeForest Kelly. Yeah, this is the best image in the whole book, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, Gray Morrow was just uh, fantastic. And since we've talked about Mego several times, he did uh, some Mego packaging, not Star Trek, but he did the, the Mad Monsters and the American West figures. So oh, there's wow. some random random uh, cra- craziness for you. <laughs> I don't think I knew but, that. Yeah, I, yeah, so, so there you go. Uh, yeah, this uh, I, 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 I love. I'm, I'm a huge uh, DeForest Kelly, Dr. McCoy fan anyway. I just love that character. I, and, you know, I mean, I love Kirk and Spock, of course, but, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm probably more, a lot more McCoy than I am Kirk or Spock. So maybe that's why I, you know, relate to him so well. But but uh, this this really captures, this captures that, that warm, that warm side of McCoy where he could, he, you know, he was good with the eyebrows too. And he's raising the eyebrows at you, you know, and, and, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot, so much character in that main drawing. I just, I love it. Yeah. The, the back page, the second page is a bit crowded, but, um, uh, and I do miss that, you know, maybe the, the second page could have had a, the younger McCoy, the, you know, McCoy in the, in the blue shirt. Uh, as the colored image, perhaps, but um, I mean, I'm nitpicking here. The uh, yeah, that that big close up is so. Uh, I mean, the shading on it. It's great. It's great moral. I mean, it's, it's always going to be uh, top shelf illustration, really. And yeah, he doesn't. Um, he doesn't disappoint here at all. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, yours? Oh, go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask: Is your all's coloring like really dark on the second page? Yes, it in is. The... Yeah. Okay. So I, I didn't know if it was one of those weird, you know, my issue came out like oversaturated or something. But it, it, it's unfortunate because Captain Kirk and when he's talking to McCoy in the lower right corner, you can't hardly tell what that is. You got to like strain your eyes because his face is like dark blue. Yeah. 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 It's a little oddly okay. colored. Yeah, that's true. Uh, one of the one of the few toys I still have left. I've kind of gotten rid of them all over the years. And I mentioned the Gorn doll. I have my old Bones figure from Star Trek uh, Counter at Farpoint. I still have that one. Oh, cool! <laughs> I, love that. McCoy. I love that cameo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's your pointed ears, boy. I love that. <laughs> it's great I love it whenever McCoy gets old or drunk, he becomes more southern. Because more southern, love- yeah, <laughs> he does. Every time when he's when he they got the spores when he turned old on the series and the deadly years, he, his, his southern drawl just like comes back to the surface. You I love might it. be a redneck <laughs> if. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the final listing of the issue. Uh, we have one little. We have two little things we want to talk about before we wrap up. First of all, is the appendix. Uh, we do have a couple of characters here. It mentions Balok. Uh, a couple other people, Charlie Evans, Ephraim Cochran, Sharon, Landrew, 
City Omicron City Three, which is kind of fun. Harry Morrow, uh, Angela Martina, Captain Styles, Tholians. I think the Tholians deserve a listing. That's a Zarabeth. I think Zarabeth deserves a listing. So this yeah, is kind of all over the place. I think some of these characters definitely should have been in the main yeah. book. Well, the Tholians. Cochrane. Yeah, is that from Cochrane? Nomad. I love Nomad. I've always I, Nomad is one of my favorite things ever. Uh, but the uh, Trelane, I mean, but uh, the Tholians is the other misspelling in the book because it, they've written it Tholanes. The eyes on this. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. I, I guess I have that, those kinds of eyes where I spot the uh, spot the typo. Um, but yeah, some of these characters, Zarabeth. I mean, I'd love to have seen Zarabeth in artwork here. Somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I might have wanted to see in the appendix. Okay, you're you're going to put some of the characters in the appendix. Maybe put what episode they're from. Mm. You know, because that's that's not there, and for the casual Star Trek uh, reader, maybe you know that would have been helpful. I could see that. I mean, he did it for the regular listings, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, that's it. That is the appendix. And then the very last thing we're going to talk about before we sign off is our pal, Zoom Yukinori. He is an obsessive uh, Who's Who completist. And, of course, we are, anyone who listens to the previous Who's Who show knows he has his own segment called Zoom's Who where he is sending us listings for characters that should have gotten listings. And he was determined to continue that even with Who's Who and Star Trek. I don't know. And the man is just nuts. So he <laughs> sent us a listing for Lokai. From Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. And it is drawn entirely by Zoom Yukinori. And it mentions the text edited from content on Memory Alpha, alphawiki.com. And it shows Loki in uh, his half face. And it mentions, of course, he's from Let, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Occupation, revolt leader. Uh, and uh, it's in the surprint, we see a giant close-up of him looking really mad. And he's sort of drunk with power. It's it's terrific. It's Zoom. Zoom's and and Zoom could not uh, bear to not have the yellow dot pattern uh, in the background, even though the Star Trek comic does not have that. So we have that here. So it fits even a little more with the uh, the regular Who's Who series. Yeah. But you know, the man is crazy that he does all this beautiful artwork for us for free. We're so thankful, and it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, and Beal is on there too because you've got you know right. the, the the flip face. So it's Beal doesn't get his own entry. Come on, Zoom. Where, where's Beal? No, Beal's in the serpent. Yeah. Uh, not to be confused with with low guy. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Yep. Yeah, I, I, we feel so guilty, but then we also really benefit from these things. So uh, please keep them keep keep them coming, Zoom. It's great. Uh, yeah, it's really really wonderful. Zephyr from Cochran. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you we go. Need, we need Zephyr from Cochran. They I, love I love that it's page forty four and a half. Yes. You know, yes. You know exactly where to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The man is, uh, he's, he's just crazy, but they say we love it. And you will be able to see this image on the image gallery, which we will have accompanying the post for the show, which is, of course, on our website, fernwaterpodcast.com. So you'll be able to see that with uh, all some of the selected images from uh, this issue. So uh, we really thank Zom. It's, it's terrific, as always. The man is, is just such a genius. So uh, that is going to do it for the first episode of Who's Who in Star Trek, the first issue of Who's Who in Star Trek. We're going to be back next month with Volume 2. Siskoi, uh, Chris, thank you so much for volunteering to take this uh, journey with me because I'm, I'm not used to commanding the starship. 
so I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without you guys because you guys, you guys both know Star Trek way more than I do. Uh, so thank you very much. I, I hope you enjoyed yourself. I had a blast. Yeah, definitely. All right, excellent. So uh, I said we're going to be back in a month to finish up this series, and then Shag will be taking over for Who's Who in Legion. So in the meantime, please leave your comments over on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And uh, I, we, we everybody knows, but, but guys, where can people find you on the Internet? Siskoid, why don't you go first? Uh, well, I think the most relevant one would be Give Me That Star Trek, uh, which is a show – just about star trek and about i tried to you know attack it from odd angles and uh, there are three episodes to date we're doing it monthly i'm also on uh, first strike invasion oh hot moo or not and uh lonely hearts all on the network all right chris i am on the supermates podcast with my wife cindy i am on the power records podcast when rob and i decide to do one and we have done star trek uh, and uh, soon to come, the Nightcast podcast Yay. with Ryan Daly, where we discussed the post-crisis Batman comics. Very cool. A lot of new shows coming up on the network. It's all so very exciting. And uh, like I said, this was cool. I, I this, you know, I, I jumped at the chance to, to tackle this mainly because I didn't want to do Legion. So, uh, and I'm very, <laughs> I'm doing Legion too. So, oh boy, you are you gunned for punishment. So yeah, so this is, this is really. I, I said I enjoyed looking at these. I'm ashamed that I did not see Daryl Marooks, David Marooks, all these years. So I'm just I can't believe it. I've owned these comics for so long, never noticed that before. Uh, but I guess uh, the the bigger blame goes to Carl Gafford for for missing that. <laughs> the uh, that was his job. So uh, thanks everybody for listening. I said leave comments on our website firewaterpodcast.com. And until next month. Live long and prosper. go now.